0: We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it, pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com ritual. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try Waking Up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com richroll. Hey, everybody, welcome to the podcast. Another hotly, hotly anticipated <laughs> edition of Roll On slash yes. Roll Call. We're still in a no man's land about we what are to call this. I guess it's Roll On. It's Roll On, like but roll
1: call. Roll, call, roll call is good. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> it's been a minute since we've been here. I think it's been a month. One month. Since I sat down with you, a lot has happened during mm. that period of time. We're gonna unpack all of it, but just to reintroduce you, In the event that there are new listeners and watchers to the show, I'm sitting across from my friend, Adam Skolnick, journalist at large, adventurer, environmentalist, author, co-author of the great David Goggins book, Can't Hurt Me, New York Times- contributor, among many other things, a swimrun aficionado. (laughs) Swimrun is like probably the most recurring theme on this podcast as of late. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Even more. Brief overview. Basically what we do in this special version of the podcast is talk about what we call the big story. We pick one thing from the news or something that piques our interest. We dive deep into it. We have a teachable moment. We do a little show and tell. And then in the second half of the show, we take a couple listener questions. You can leave your question if you would like it addressed on our Facebook group, or you can leave us a voicemail, which is most preferred, at 424-235-4626, and we will air it on the show and discuss. The main reason why we missed our last biweekly edition of Roll On is... uh, because the man sitting across from me had kind of a life-changing event that occurred that kind prevented of. him from being here. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had to scramble to get another episode up in time. Uh, it was predictable, of course. Sorry about that. Tell us what happened.
1: Uh, my wife gave birth to our son. Oh, my goodness. Zuma came came to us on uh, August 29th at 6.11 in the PM. And it was... Uh, Yeah, man. It was an incredible day. It started early in the morning. She started getting contractions and we had like the full, um, yoga spirituality mantras kind of blaring in the office in our, uh, we have a two bedroom. And so in the office slash maybe future baby room Uh and, uh, and it, and she was super in charge of the energy. There was so much energy flowing. And then by the, by eight o'clock that night, we were in the hospital and then it was a full, almost 24 hours later, she was in labor for 38 hours. Um,
0: thirty-eight yeah, hours. Yeah, with that
1: wow. we we uh, that Zuma came in. Once she started pushing, it was like just over an hour. The, the doctors were like, "Whoa, that's very fast," because just yeah. one to three hours, and um, and he was you know almost eight pounds and healthy, and and then we had nurses for a couple of days in the hospital, and and the, by the way, the team at UCLA at the labor and delivery UCLA Santa Monica is incredible, just mm-hmm. incredible doctors, incredible nurses, and then after two days, they send you home. And you have to figure out,
0: figure yeah. out what to do. <laughs> well, it's that thing. It's like, wait, wait, you're not coming with me? Yeah, wait. Like, where, where, where do we going to go? Home go? Now? <laughs> what do we do now? It's, when's somebody gonna come and pick this thing up? Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly,
1: yeah. And, uh, and meanwhile, your wife is just torn up and like, you know, emotional and just like everything is going haywire in her body. And you're completely
0: ill-equipped. And
1: you're ill-equipped, but you have to step up like like into the breach. And so it was cool. You know, like the first day, the first night, um, you know, I'd always, I'd thought of people who've like done co-sleeping and slept in the bed with their babies. I always thought that seems hazardous. But on that first night, the only thing that soothed him was being on on one of our chests. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I had him on my chest on the couch and he fell asleep and I just brought him to bed and literally had him like, in the nook of my arm, um, sleeping with him that way on night one. Uh, now we have a better sleeping system, but like that first night, right away, you're breaking all your rules. You know, you're, you're just trying to figure it out. Yeah. But th- there's something profound that happens there. And in, in, re- in reality, he's like a super chill baby and, and um, not, he, you know, he doesn't like uh, being in poopy pants or having his diaper changed. So there's an irony there. Yeah. But, well, who um, does? Right. Who, who wants that? Um, and uh, so, the, other than that, he's like really chill, and he's and he's doing great, and uh, mom is doing great. She's bounced right back, and and everything's going well. I mean, I'm knocking on wood. It's been cool.
0: Are you one of those guys who always wanted to be a dad, or were you on the fence about that?
1: No, I mean it's uh, it's both. You know, growing up, I always assumed I'd be. A dad, I loved kids. I was one of those people, like, as a teenager and in college and, you know, as a young adult, gravitated towards that. I was in education for a, a hot minute mm-hmm. and um, loved hanging out with little kids and always had a good time with it. And so I just assumed it was going to happen. Um, then after my divorce, I was married once before. Uh, when I was 40, I we were divorced, 41, I think I was divorced. Uh, you know, I just thought it wouldn't happen. I just mm-hmm. assumed, okay, well, now... You know, when I remarry, if I remarry, probably someone a little older, and it probably just won't happen. And so I just assumed that, or maybe I'd be a stepdad or something like that. You know, it was kind of the assumption I had. Yeah. And um, and then, and when April and I got together, we we still didn't have plans to have kids. We weren't like necessarily trying. Um, and so so then when it happened, you know, we embraced it. Uh, but no, I didn't think by the time like we got married and, and you know this time last year, I did not think I would be a father. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Did you have that experience of instant love? It's interesting.
1: You hear, about? you hear about like the instant, like for me, I'm just not, I mean, I think, I don't, I, I, I take it like, I don't think I'm like that. Like people think, they talk about these really high moments. For me, the high moments tend to be not the things people think about. Um, I didn't have this all of a sudden Shakti pod, like, heart bursting. My life is totally different experience. Uh-huh. Um, not to say that I don't love my son or have enjoyed the experience, but it didn't, didn't realign everything for me right away. But I will say this last week, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, this story came my way and I just couldn't resist getting back in after just one week off and <laughs> like doing a little bit of writing.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and, uh, and I'll, you'll, I'll tell you guys why, but that experience, like Doing a story used to always be like, I'd be so hyped up on it and I'd be like, I'd need to get every interview. And if I didn't have it coming, I'd I'd have all sorts of anxiety. When will I get it? Or, or when will the editor read it? All that's gone, and I don't know if it's sleep deprivation or just like more chill about things because you know I have something way more important mm-hmm. in my life. Like I have no anxiety about that at all, right? You know, A realignment
0: so, of priorities. So that's and the most what's really important.
1: Yeah. So I think that's the most profound thing I've noticed so far, and I do feel like the love. The love is there. It's not like it's not there, and I think as I. As I grow into this uh, new phase, I'll probably see more of those kinds of more subtle realignments uh-huh. and it'll grow into something huge. I'm
0: sure. Two points that I wanna make. First, the most important point yeah. is that I was the only one who called the day. Yes, you called the day. <laughs> yes. I forgot. Yes, he did. <laughs> August ninth. Let's make that known for the record. Yes, on the Although record. Although I thought it was gonna be at 2.30 in the morning. I didn't yeah, get but the you time thought it was right.
1: Saturday night, but 2.30 in the morning. Right, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. 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 Second thing is... uh Zuma, I mean, it's the most epic name of all time. Also, very California.
1: It is very yeah. it, well. So,
0: explain. Okay,
1: so it's Zuma James Kalu Skolnik is his name. Zuma, um, it
0: means abundance in Chumash. Uh, it's and Chumash is the native uh, indigenous tribe of this region.
1: Yes, and we. Spent most of our recreation time off Point Doom, diving a reef out there. And Point Doom was sacred in the Chumash culture. And so- And Zuma is the beach. And Zuma is the beach- Adjacent to Point Doom. Right there. So so that was April's decision. She wanted it to be Zuma. And originally she was throwing out Aspen. And I'm like, I like Aspen trees, but we're not really ever in Aspen or Mm. around Aspen trees. So she came up with Zuma, which I think fits better. Plus I have a nephew and niece, Zach and Zoe, so it like adds to the z's oh, in the family. A little alliterative. So it's nice, um, oh, and then James. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, we sometimes take the first letter of someone's name that you want to name your child after we don't usually do the like the you know Adam Skolnick Jr. type stuff but you might take someone's first initial and and honor someone with that and so I had an uncle Jay Michelson who growing up meant uh you know we spent a lot of time with he and uh my aunt Sid and and three cousins uh John Jeremy and Jenny and we spent a lot of time together, like a lot of road trips, all the first travel experience of my life were with them. And he just meant a lot to me growing up and into young adulthood. And he died uh, younger than you're supposed to in his sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I wanted to honor him. So James, J for J, Michelson, mm-hmm. and then Kalu for Ekalu, who is, uh, who died last year. Freedom fighter in uh, Karin state, Burma area, and he's exiled uh, freedom fighter who became basically ran his country's health system from exile in Maysat, Thailand. Uh, like you've heard about the Rohingya who were, uh, you know, massacred and abused by mm-hmm. the Myanmar military for years, that's happened in all sorts of ethnic states in Burma, which is this country with a lot of different ethnicities. The Karen people are one of those, uh, uh, states that was, uh, under continual attack for, you know, decades. And Ekalu was helping to kind of keep a medical system in place, even though all these people are getting displaced. So he would train medics and bring medics to displaced people camps all over, uh, state. And he was just a gentle giving, incredible, uh, you know peaceful warrior soul right and,
0: and he you interviewed him or you did a story on this so i right? did a
1: story on um on that on on how some American doctors were working with Ekaloo and his team of medics in, um, Corinne state in the displaced people's camps to, uh, try to cut down on malaria. Cause malaria is killing a lot of people. Once you're displaced, a lot of times what ends up killing people in Burma after the military burns down your villages, you have nowhere to go and you're uh-huh. out exposed and you can die of malaria. That's the number one killer. Um, and so, uh, you know, he they had come up with this rapid malaria test that was enabling some really early interventions and cutting down on malaria deaths. And it was able to be, they did studies that was able to be replicated in other places that weren't necessarily war zones. Mm. And so it was really important work that they were doing, like actually public health work, but doing it in like, in this really high intensity, uh, war zone type area. And so, yes, I was out there. I, I basically uprooted my life and moved to Mesot for months and reported on this story. Um, and Ekalu was like, you know, my number one source. And, and I featured him in the story and just stayed close with him. Uh, and, you know, always remember him. So it's, it's also because my wife is Asian. She's from, uh, she's from Australia, but her family, is uh, her roots are Malaysia, Southeast mm-hmm. Asia as well. So it's a, co- a good way to honor uh, our son's Asian heritage, even though it's not Malaysian, but it's still Southeast Asian heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a good way to keep, put a little of that in there too.
0: A lot of thought and intentionality yeah. into this name. Yeah. yeah. Zuma James Kalu Skolnick. That's it. Wow. Yeah, man. Yeah, so wow, uh with that, having a newborn in the house. Yep. <laughs> how's the uh how's the fitness? How's the training going? Yeah, how's the swim run training? <laughs> Not you a just lot of all swim out running. the window, right? Yeah, Like yeah, barely yeah, any yeah. sleep.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just forget about it. For barely a while. any sleep. He's been he's been um pretty chill with sleep, but he's still, you still have to attend to him. You wake up, Uh you know, know, your sleep is, you're lucky if you get, you know, six hours of sleep. Right. Um, Six hours is great. Yeah, six hours is great. You You know, I've been an insomniac for years, so I'm kind of built for it in a way, like broken sleep has been my thing for so long that it doesn't, but I I still need at least like seven hours to feel good. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've been able to get, we're building up to that, Um, but, I've done two, three-mile runs, basically. Right. And that, that's all I've done. And, yeah. and that, they were all in the last four days. Yeah. So so uh, I haven't done a lot. I hope to do more. I hope to get in the ocean soon and just get a swim in. But um, what do you think? You think What are my prospects here?
0: I think you grab what you can. You yeah. know, this is a really precious time. You wanna be as present as you possibly can for it. And with that realignment and priorities, your focus is on your newborn and in supporting your wife. Yeah. So- uh, so it's natural and appropriate that your fitness regimen is going to get <laughs> short shrift, but you still have to carve out some time for yourself because as the adage goes, um, if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of others, right? So yeah. you still have to make sure that you have at least a little bit of time that's just for you so that you can recharge your battery and then show up with the best of your abilities to you know, support what's going on at home.
1: That's it, man. I gotta stave out the dad bod.
0: Mm. Yeah, no dad bods allowed no in dad, the podcast studio. <laughs> I'll lose this job. You're gonna get fired. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's good. I mean, I, I'll check in with my sort of latest yeah. on the fitness front. Um, when we last spoke, I told you that I was shifting my focus away from endurance and onto strength, taking that 90-10 kind of endurance, 10% strength, flipping it to 90% strength, 10% endurance. And I've adhered to that routine. And I've been doing it now for, I don't know, five weeks at this point. Really? And it's been great. You know, I will say that I'm not a gym rat by nature. When I wake up in the morning and it's a nice day, I just want to go out on the trails. Right. And I just want to be wild and free for a couple hours of just running and, Being in nature and the idea of being, you know, throwing some weight around inside a building just is not appealing. And for many, many years, I just shrugged it off. I was like, I'm not doing that. And I found myself, you know, at 53, coming quickly upon 54, with some back issues and some imbalances and just not feeling strong. You know, I've gone through periods of my life where I was very strong, but this sort of over prioritization of endurance training um and not really taking the time or carving out the time to pay attention to functional strength and making sure that overall my body is sound has taken its toll and like i mentioned i've ha- i'm having some sciatica stuff some back problems and just feeling you know janky and not in command of my corpus in the way that I would like. So I was like, now is the time where there's no rate, there's nothing to be trained for at the minute. So let me do the things that I'm always, you know, telling myself I don't have time for. And, you know, I started really slow and was, you know, appalled at how weak I was in the gym. And I should say, just so people know, there's a, a little gym near my house that's part of the pool where I swim. And they moved some of their gym equipment out of the gym and into an outdoor space. Okay. And you can book 1 hour in, you know 1 hour appointments so you can only go in for 1 hour and they restrict how many people can be in there and you're wearing a mask so they've under in taken there, certain in safety this, protocols in this outdoor area. In a tiny yeah it's like it's not a big space and right. there's only like 4 people there when I'm there. But the one hour window forces me to go in and get it done and not like, you know, kind of walk around, and yeah. do the kind of things that you would do at the gym where you're there for hours and you didn't really do anything. So it makes Keep me Keep the heart focused. rate up. Keep the heart rate up, you know, get through the workouts. And I'm doing really basic stuff like bench press and like squats and like, you know, just stuff that ordinarily I just would never do. Yeah. Um, And like I said, you know, started off with really light weights in an almost embarrassing fashion, uh, which was a nice lesson in humility and also a dose of just how far away I'd moved from that aspect of being a physically fit athlete. Um, But I've shown up for it almost every day and now it's kicked in and I'm starting to see the gains and see the progression and I feel good in my body. And I have one of those physiques where you know, if I touch a weight, like I blow up, like, hmm. you know, I I can make gains pretty quickly. And and I'm already seeing my body change. Like I'm getting like wider and like really? squatter. Like I'm used to, in endurance training, it's all about power to weight ratio. You wanna be as lean as possible without sacrificing power on the bike or in the run. Like the lighter you are right. in general, the better you are. You can get too light and then you're weak, but it's finding that perfect um. Balance between those two things. So you're paying a lot of attention to getting. And so when you're riding your bike and running all the time, your upper body just it's the upper body. It's, yeah. you know you you start to look like a you know like a 13 year old boy after a while. Like if you look at the Tour de France riders right. and they take their shirt off, you're like, holy smokes, right?
1: You know? But their legs are their just legs like, are massive, are like right. Greek gods. But
0: they're so lean, you know, yeah. they're so light. Their chassis are yeah. like you know just reduced down to the barest minimum. And now I'm trying to build that back up and. It's been interesting, but now I'm at a place where I've gotten over the hump of that initial phase where, you know, I feel like I'm embarrassed to even be there. And now I have like some momentum and I'm seeing some gains and I'm looking forward to it in a way that I wouldn't have predicted and I'm really enjoying it.
1: Are you working with a trainer there?
0: No. I mean, you know, I I know what to do in, okay. in the gym. so. That's been really fun. So no spotter on the bench press or anything. No, but I'm not like, I do lower weight, higher rep stuff, but I'll do like three rounds per exercise. And I break it down into like one day I'll do chest and arms. The next day I do back and shoulders and then I do legs and I kind of rotate through that. And it's a really basic rudimentary. I'm not doing anything, you know, funky or weird. I'm not throwing around kettle balls yet. Like I'm still just trying to get fundamentally like strong enough so then I can start to challenge myself with different and newer exercises. At the same time, doing a ton of core stuff, like yeah. trying to strengthen my back and strengthen, you know, my abdominals. At the same time, what I left off, um, what I left out in the last time we spoke was the other aspect of what I'm focusing on right now, which is trying to relearn running, to rewild my running, uh, to quote the great Tony Riddle, Yes, who was a fantastic guest on the podcast who's all about barefoot running and functional strength and getting back to kind of an ancestral biomechanic relationship with the body and with nature. And in the course of my day that I spent with Tony, when he came out to do the podcast, we went out, well, the first thing he did when he arrived is he started showing me all these drills for barefoot running yeah. and we made a video, Allie's right over here. She she Great created video. a really cool video that people really enjoyed yeah. of us doing some drills and him taking me through a couple really basic um, routines to retrain how to run. And like, you know, I I just go out and run. Like I, I haven't really thought that much about technique in a very long time. And this is a very counterintuitive approach to what is fundamentally, you know, natural for everybody.
1: But in those videos, you didn't seem like, it didn't seem for you actually, when watching those videos- oh, yeah, well, yeah, I was like, like, what
0: am I doing yeah, here? Yeah, like, yeah. He's he's running barefoot on my gravel driveway <laughs> yeah. and I couldn't even walk on it. And I was like, how do you, what are you even doing? Like, how is it even possible that you could run on these rocks yeah, <laughs> and not hurt your feet? Like it was amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. And it just seems so foreign and impossible to yeah. me. Um, I'm not there yet, I will say that, um, but- After we did those drills, then we went out to Malibu Creek State Park and we went running. And in allegiance to, you know, what he was teaching me, I pulled out my pair of Vivo barefoot running shoes, which I had not worn in quite some time. He did the whole thing barefoot. I did them in my Vivos and I couldn't walk for like a week after what was essentially a pretty easy six or seven mile run because my calves were so sore, Mm. which was an indication of the fact that this is a very different kind of motion than what mm-hmm. i was used to and i was just amazed at his ability to do this trail run barefoot like i you know like on little rocks and all kinds of things that you would think would just tear your feet apart, but he's so accustomed to this that he could do it in an extremely graceful way.
1: Because his feet so, have a musculature that ours don't, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah well, yeah. it's
0: also this technique of lifting. Like yeah. if you watch that video or you go to and take his programs, he's got all these online programs, it's all about like this light touch with the earth where you're focusing on on pulling your heels up and kicking them back and working your hamstrings and this leaning forward motion. It's a whole thing um, that's very different from how you're running in running shoes. And what I realized initially, even when I did that run with Tony, was just how hard I was landing. Like, you know, when you're wearing a, a minimal shoe, you can feel the pounding, you know, and you're I'm like, I have like a lead foot. And what is the relationship to that the biometrics of that on the back pain that I'm experiencing or you know the occasional pain in my hips that I'm feeling? What if I could relearn how to run so that I have a very soft touch and it's not a pounding experience, but a more um, human and natural approach to this movement, right? So I devoted myself to trying to learn this and this is a very, I'm very much just in the starting gate of trying to figure this out to retrain you know, this process of running. And so um, I don't know what happened to those Vivo barefoot shoes. I couldn't find them. So I went out and bought, I bought another pair and I haven't worn anything, but we're gonna do a show and tell and I'm wearing them right now because I just came from the gym, but I'll, I'll, I'll in the show and tell, I'll pull them out and show you guys and we could talk a little bit more about it, but it's been really interesting. And I've started, this is another thing that I started really slow, just doing the drills, being very gentle on myself, not overdoing it. And then went from drills to doing a run, like I ran ten minutes. You know, just trying to keep my cadence really high, focusing on lifting my feet up, being gentle on the earth, not pounding, not landing hard. Where were and you running? So just on on like there's, um, I alternated between trails and pavement because I I wanted I, I wanted to mix those two things up. In the Vivos um, or barefoot? In, no, in the Vivos. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not like running barefoot. Yeah. Like okay. I, yeah. So I'm just trying to do this. I don't wanna get injured either. And, you know, when I, when my calves, you know, were hurting for a week, when I, when I overstepped it and went out running, you know, full stop in these things, I realized like, this is something that, you know, I could easily get hurt doing if I don't take it slowly. So yeah, it started off with like a 10 minute run. Now I'm up to being able to run an hour in them and I have no soreness and, You know, my technique is coming along. I still have a lot to learn, but I'm getting better at it. And it's been really fun. And this is an example of looking for the opportunity in the quarantine. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, all these things that I like to do, they're kind of off the table. What can I do that ordinarily I wouldn't be able to justify or I would just have a hard time wrapping my head around? It's like the world has stopped. Like, let's learn this thing. Let's take the time, be patient and try to master... Um, a new skill so it's been really fun and i'm enjoying it i love it, it. Yeah.
1: i think also like you can't um understate or overstate the uh what that does to your brain just learning this starting again at, at zero mm-hmm. and being the begin, like the beginner mind yeah. like what that does for you how that kind of keeps you young to to some degree and just keeps you humble and all sorts of good things yeah. come from being open to being the beginner again. It
0: also changes your relationship with time. Mm. When you're in a rut and in a routine and doing things the way that you always do them and always kind of doubling down on your strengths and ignoring your weaknesses, uh, time, especially as you get older, seems to speed up. It's like, wow, it's already September. Like what happened to the summer? Yeah. But when you decide to try to learn something new, time slows down Mm. and it seems more technicolor than it would ordinarily cuz it's triggering you know it would be interesting to hear what what Andrew Huberman would have to say about that because i think it lights up other areas of your brain that are that are dormant that's what i'm
1: thinking i'm like what kind of like brain health thing is there from like taking up something new I mean, they talk about all the time with older people learning a new language or you know mm-hmm. like you know i wonder there has got to be some sort of brain health benefit i'm sure there is it's definitely an starting.
0: overlooked aspect of yeah. well-being and perhaps even longevity yeah Especially Um, in terms of brain health.
1: It's it's very inspiring to me because I've had all sorts of foot problems and, and, uh, you know, just playing basketball for so many years and just spraining both ankles, you know, a half a dozen times. And and just like I've had, you know, I have orthotics for my regular running shoes and then going into the swim run shoes, which are very minimal, even Uh the Solomons that I typically run in cause the vivos are so hard for me to deal with. I'm wearing the vivo every days right, right now in, yeah, yeah. for this episode. And I have worn them, but like if I wear them too many hours, like I feel the this calf pain and I feel my foot pain even more, but the Solomons, you know, I had to, one of the reasons I, st- I actually stopped running the week before, um, April gave birth because I'd had I had like this almost a shin splint feeling that was starting to happen, mm-hmm. and so I had to stop. And so I, I, I mean, I'm definitely a lead footer. I mean, I'm a I'm a thumper. Right. So, um, you know, it's just and there's this sense makes that makes well, me, that's just the yeah. way I am. Like yeah.
0: I have a heavy foot. Yeah. Well, that's not the case. That's right. just because this is the way that your brain is wired to move yourself in yeah. this way. But that can be retrained. And in addition to, excuse me, um, you know, what I witnessed spending time with Tony. I also reflect back upon my experience doing the the, uh, to le, the <laughs> uh, to le world championships. Yes, and I was amazed how many people were wearing Vivos in that ultra race. Not, not everybody, thing. you know. There was a there was a, a variety yeah. of different kind of shoe selections, but there was definitely a contingent of competitors who were wearing Vivos. And I was like, "How are you?" gonna do this race, be on your feet for nine hours or however long this thing goes on in this minimal barefoot shoe. Like Mm. I couldn't wrap my head around it. Now I'm starting to understand that not only is it possible, like maybe it's a better way to go. And I think to really, you know, punctuate this whole thing and bring it back to Tony, he just completed last year. um, He did this thing where he did the, 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 he basically ran the entire length of England, like did the John O'Groats run, like ultra running, like, you know, I don't know, something like four or 50 miles a day barefoot. remember that. From one end of the, you know, the the island to the other. It was an incredible accomplishment. This year, he just completed something called Three Bare Peaks, where he ran 450 miles over nine days. It was like nine days, seven hours, 18 minutes, where he tackled the three tallest peaks um, in the UK, Mount Snowden in Wales, scaffold Peak in England, and Ben Nevis in Scotland, when so there's a lot he of, ran between there's them a lot all. of pavement in between these in the these mountains, right. which he ran in vivos, but then he would scale the mountains barefoot, barefoot or some combination of barefoot and wearing his vivos. Um, in addition to that, according to an article I just read, which I just found out, I didn't know this. Apparently he had COVID, like he was just coming off having COVID when he did this. It must not have been a very severe case of COVID. Well, no, Um, COVID just can't deal with Tony. Like Tony- Maybe, yeah. Well, he's the natural lifestylist, right? Yeah, COVID's like, I don't wanna
1: be in Tony. Right.
0: (laughs) Tony's Um, gonna make me run barefoot. Apparently this is a thing, this race and he broke the record for it. I don't know how many people have done it um over the over, the over the years, Congratulations. but essentially he was running uh the equivalent of about two marathons every day. He's over a beast, this. man. 17 marathons total over this 9-day period. Incredible. Yeah, which is amazing, amazing. right? Amazing. Um and he's all about it's going this is going to dovetail into the into the the, the big idea that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um this kind of like ethos that he lives is all about trying to align himself with the natural rhythms of the planet. Like he's removed all the chairs out of his house right. and he's about squatting and right. being barefoot and trying to connect with something that is very primal and ancestral about being human, um, which in many ways, as a result of you know the modernity of the world in which we inhabit, we've lost connection with.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and his, and I think just f- one last physiological question. I mean, I imagine his feet are extremely muscular. I, I, I met a guy in Tahiti named Mato who is barefoot all the time. And he once sailed a canoe with like some other Tahitian guys all the way to Shanghai and uh, then was walking down the city streets of Shanghai barefoot. And this uh-huh. guy doesn't like his feet are thick as, you know, they like, just like muscle. It's right. like a pure muscle with toes coming out. And he everywhere he goes, he can run on any surface and, and hike any surface. I mean, imagine Tony's feet have to be like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, they don't look deformed or anything like that. I mean, the original impetus for him getting into this was that he had some kind of foot deformity, and this was a means of trying to correct that. Um, they don't look freakish, but- um, they have like the skin on the bottom is much thicker, obviously, mm-hmm. like he's not, you know, like the tenderness on the underside of most people's feet, my mine included, and I'm yeah. sure yours, right. you know, is so paper thin and yeah. that gets, you know, conditioned in a way where, you know, yeah. he can run on loose, tiny little gravel rocks and it's not cutting feel him it. or, yeah, he doesn't feel it. At yeah, all. amazing. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
1: Well, you had a a couple of of questions that we aren't gonna tackle later that um, kind of, get into this fitness area. One is a, a woman, Linda in Marin, who is trying to do the same thing, get into more functional body strength and to age gra- gracefully and kind of transitioning out of mostly running and endurance. Uh, and she wondered if there's anywhere to start. Like where would you recommend somebody to follow your lead? How would, you get, how would you recommend Linda to start?
0: There's a million videos on YouTube. You can just dial up functional fitness routines on YouTube and you'll get tons of instructional videos. Um, I wish I'd written this down, but there's one called like mountain fitness or something like that. Like they literally take every exercise and make like a two minute video out of it, whether it's a kettlebell exercise or some kind of abdominal or back exercise, and they walk you through it so that you can watch it. And that's how I learned how to do some really basic like kettlebell moves because that's really foreign to me. So uh, you know, the perils of YouTube, which we're gonna get into yeah, in a minute. That's a better are, transition. Are buffered <laughs> by, you know, a lot of helpful information when it comes <laughs> to this kind of stuff, right? Yes. So I would start there. I mean, I think the larger point to her point about desiring to age gracefully mm. is well-considered because, and we talked about this last time, as we get older, she's 53, I'm 53, I can continue to advance my, you know, endurance capacity. That doesn't go away as we age. What becomes more difficult is um, maintaining strength and muscle mass. Like mm. that starts to diminish as we get older. And I think, you know, it's important to make sure that you're taking care of that. Um, you know, I've I told you like, oh, I touch a weight and I blow up, and that's always been the case for me. Um, but I have noticed. Now at 53, it's taking a little bit longer. It's coming back, but I do have to be more patient with it. And I think, um, you know, I can five weeks into this, what what do I have to say? But I can tell you that I feel better in my body, and I feel like I have more control and agility, and it's a good feeling. And I, it's something that I'm going to continue to do, irrespective of, of you know how much I dip back into the endurance world. And you see it with. We mentioned this last time too. Like this is the David Goggins approach. Like he's been just doing because he's running, time. you know, yeah. hundred mile plus runs doesn't mean that he's not in the gym. And, you know, he might be a better ultra runner if he cut back on that stuff and lost 15 pounds of shoulder, <laughs> shoulder mass. Right. You know, he might be a better runner. But overall, over the course of his life, will he be um, as strong and as fit and as healthy? Who knows?
1: You know. Right. Well, I mean, I'm sure he's been told that a million times right. by people. You know, you like, should. What are you bench pressing yeah, for? Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's been in the gym this entire time. Like he's right. like it's it's two a days and three a days mm. um, every time, and one of them is always in the gym. So right. Um, and functional stuff like often body weight stuff more than anything. Yeah. You know, like pull ups and push ups. Right, because the gyms kind of are stuff. closed.
0: Right. You know. There
1: you go. Um,
0: all right, the big story.
1: The big story. Do you want to you want to kick this? Yeah, you brought I mean, this one up, so
0: it's not going to be a surprise to anybody who follows me on social media because I've been posting about this. Yes. But what I really want to do is spend some time talking about this documentary, the Social Dilemma, which yes. just premiered on Netflix. It's essentially an exploration of the dangerous human impact of social networking, interspersed with talking heads, these tech experts who are sounding the alarm on their own creations and the existential threat to humanity they pose. And I think what makes it so compelling and distinct from other kind of alarm bell documentaries is that these talking heads are not only alerting us to the dangers of what's going on online right now, they are the architects of it themselves right and they're holding themselves to account on some level um, that's you know a tangential uh, thread that we can pull on in a minute because it's it's fraught with complications yes but I found this documentary to not only be incredibly powerful I really believe that it is the most important movie of the year and I can't stress enough um, how how much I think everybody needs to see this film. It is.
1: It is the um, revelation, the Neo revelation in, Ma- in the Matrix. You know, it really is. It's like we're all Neo, and this is Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, coming to us to try to Morpheus trying to tell right. us tell us what's really going on don't, yeah. don't you think I mean it, it, not to be not to make it like bigger than it is but it is a really big issue and Morpheus is Tristan Harris yeah <laughs> and and that's what's happening yeah and he yeah, closes yeah.
0: the movie by essentially saying like how do you get people to wake up from the Matrix when they don't even realize that they're in the Matrix which is all point in the Matrix which is just to, to put yourself Matrix. in the position of Neo when he comes to realize that there's more going on than he originally imagined.
1: And we, and to, to make it clear, what's happening is basically we're the product. You know, I think uh, you also sent me this G- GQ article mm-hmm. um, that one of the people who's featured in the movie, Jaron Lanier, um, Zach Barron's GQ uh, profile of him. And in that, uh, Jaron is basically... Quoted as saying, Anytime you are provided with a service like Facebook for free, you are in fact the product being sold. Mm-hmm. And that's the point of this whole documentary. Right. We are the product. We are what's being mined. We are the precious metal, you know, yeah. lifeblood of the earth that's being mined for money. Uh, and we're doing it because we think we're getting better connection to our friends and family. But in reality, we're being teed up with content and these news feeds that might feel sometimes really good, but in the long run are really bad for mental health, uh, especially in young people, and are really, really bad for social uh, welfare and democracy.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's happening to such an extent that we're completely unaware that it's happening and it is undermining our free will. Mm. I mean, we could talk about whether we have free will at all, period, but certainly this is triggering us in a way to, navigate the world from a perspective where we think we're making decisions about the content that we consume, but we've been so manipulated by these platforms that it leads us down these pathways and introduces us to ideas that we didn't consciously uh, choose for ourselves. And I think Jaron Lanier is is like the godfather of this notion. Like Mm -hmm. this guy is unbelievable, right? Mm -hmm. Like I would love to get him on the podcast. I mean, he's been around forever. He's a pioneer of virtual reality. He, you know, worked at Atari for a long time. He's kind of this futurist philosopher king. Many years ago, he wrote his own manifesto. I mean, we could talk about Tristan's manifesto, but Jaron's, you know, he wrote like 10 reasons to delete your social media. Like this is not a new idea. No. From his perspective, he was recently a guest on Andrew Yang's podcast, which everyone should check out. Um, Super interesting, thoughtful, uh, you know, perspective on the impact of social media on on, on everybody. But the movie is really the brainchild of Tristan Harris, who has been making the podcast rounds for many years. You know, I would highly suggest checking out his first appearance on Sam Harris's podcast. It was amazing. He's a former design ethicist from Google and has kind of now stepped into this role as, you know, the quote-unquote conscience of of Silicon Valley – he wrote this manifesto when he was at Google like, "Hey, you know, shouldn't we be thinking about like the impact of these products and how addictive they are? Like, what are we really doing here? Mm-hmm. I think we need to stop for a minute and assess the long-term implications of these tools that we've crafted and everybody seemed to agree. It kind of went viral within not just Google, but Silicon Valley at large. Everyone nodded, but then nothing happened." Mm-hmm. And that led him to quit his job and create this now nonprofit called um, the Center for Humane Technology, which is really the one organization. I'm sure there's others, but the leading organization that's trying to, you know, redress the ills of of these social platforms and these technology behemoths and how they're impacting not just personal mental health, but How they're undermining the the cohesion and the social fabric of of society at large.
1: So let's take let's kind of like unpack it. So we'll start with like the the human psychological component because um, that's one thing that I think I didn't fully get until watching this is the idea is that that they are the this AI that is basically taking our data, analyzing the data and then using what it's learned about us to serve us more content in in the idea to capture our attention, to mine our attention so mm-hmm. they can sell this stuff for pennies. I mean, it's pennies, a click, like mm-hmm. pennies. So basically, we're being sold super cheap, yes, <laughs> you know, but just a, a million right. times over. But it is uh, it's an understanding of human psychology and twisting. It's like the greatest con ever. It is it, it's computer con, and it's understanding who we are and what we want next before we even know we want it. Mm-hmm. That's why it feels like free will when we're clicking on something. But it's not necessarily free will, correct? right?
0: And the way that they illustrate that is with these little uh, dramatic interludes that they pepper throughout the movie. Which I will say, <laughs> if there's one flaw in this movie, I'm not so sure that these these things are successful. They do they do one where they play out kind of a family drama with yeah. actors and you know the classic kind of trope of being at the dinner table and like don't have your phones and the teenagers are rebelling and that all feels kind of dated right now. But the other little uh, drama that they interpose throughout is this panel of uh, Vincent Carthizer, who you might know from Mad Men. plays Pete from Mad Men yeah, plays yeah, the from AI. Play, he plays the <laughs> AI. He plays three guys, or he plays all of them, and they're all sitting behind yeah. monitors, you know, as puppeteers yeah. trying to, you know, staring at their product, who yeah. is the young teen boy um, in the other drama trying to maintain his connection to this platform. Like, oh, he looks like he's gonna log off, send him this so he stays here. Right. And it's sort of cheeky and fun. It's fun. It it makes the point, but the point, the larger point being like, all of these little bells and whistles are very well thought out Mm. and intended in the same way a Vegas casino casino intends to keep you, you know, in front of that slot machine or at the table to keep you engaged on this platform and not let you leave. Whether it's the color scheme or the way that every time you refresh, it's a new feed, all of these things are A-B tested to the gills to maintain your focus and keep those eyeballs on that platform. They serve you up the ads you wanna see. Uh, they you know, know who the people are that you really wanna hear from on these platforms. And so we think we're just staying in touch with our friends when in reality, we are being mined for so much data that this AI understands us better than we understand ourselves. And that's a frightening prospect. And how this gets played out, it's one thing to talk about it in kind of an intellectual academic context, but we're seeing the deleterious implications of this getting played out in the fracturing of our society. And one of the quotes that was really impactful for me in watching this movie was when... um, Somebody said, I can't remember which person said this, maybe you'll remember, but he said, You know, we ha- we have this idea of the Truman Show, like, yeah. you know, you're in a reality show where you're being manipulated. Well, imagine that everybody, every single person, the billions of individuals that are on Facebook. He said
1: 2.7 billion Truman Shows. Right.
0: Are all in their yeah. own respective personal Truman Show. Roger That's McNamee said from that everybody one. Else. Yeah,
1: Roger McNamee. And when
0: you realize that, you realize that. We're not engaging in a shared reality. No. We all have our own reality, and we're deluded to think that everyone is living in our reality when, in fact, they are not.
1: Exactly. So, uh, which which means that you know the, the the Time Magazine article that we both read this week, which you're going to include in the show notes, which mm-hmm. kind of um, it, it's from Boots. It's basically a reporter that's been in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, uh, in the Post Jacob Blake. Uh, kind of protests and everything that's been happening there. She's there. You know, smoke is cleared, and she's there and interviewing. Uh, which I think it was nine dozen or seven dozen people. Mm-hmm. Um, about you know from all parts of you know from the left to the right about what they think about this upcoming election. And um, it's scary some of the views from both sides that are mm-hmm. that that people were were uh you know just basically parroting QAnon theory and and things like that. And one point she makes is. You can't have a functional democracy if you don't have an informed public. And um, it used to be a little easier to figure out uh, or to figure out how to be informed. And now that's all very muddy. And the reason that's muddy, and we can talk about the, you know fake news traveling six times faster than real news on these platforms, and that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that the AI doesn't care what's fake or, or, or real because it doesn't know What's mm-hmm. fake or real? It just knows clicks. Mm-hmm. And and so some of the, sometimes what you're getting on your Facebook feed, it won't necessarily feed you stuff you like. It won't necessarily feed you material from people you like hearing from. It will feed you stuff it knows you don't like because it knows it will keep you on that feed longer. Right. So it, you'll find if you wonder why there's all this politics on your news feed, that's because it knows you don't like it. <laughs> But you can't resist reading this shit, right?
0: If you click on it, yeah. that's the paramount. Consideration, that's all that matters, right? Right. There's a quote in that Time article uh, by this woman Whitney Phillips, who's a professor at at Syracuse who studies online disinformation, and she said they're not on the same. She's talking about these people who are kind of canvassed, who are all like harboring, you know, ideas that range from insane conspiracy to you know countercultural or what have you. And she said they're not on the same epistemological grounding. They're not living in the same worlds. You cannot have a functioning democracy when people are not, at the very least, occupying the same solar system. And this is what is so troubling and problematic about all of this. And I said to you the other day when we were talking about this, when we look at the very large existential problems that we face from climate change to political division to wild conspiracy theories to the protesting in the streets. none of it can be properly addressed and worked through if we're not sharing some basic uh, set of facts That's here. Right. We cannot solve our problems existential and practical um, if we don't solve this social dilemma first. this is like the this is a root driver of the division, the divisiveness, the polarization, the anger, the acrimony that we're getting that we're seeing getting played out on the streets all over the country and I think we really need to pause mm-hmm. and reflect upon the role that these technological behemoths play in our society. And I think it's incumbent upon us as the public to call for their regulation. You know, this movie is very dystopian when you watch it. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, it's sort of like, okay, well, we can't leave the audience just feeling absolutely horrible without some sense of hope or solution. Um, But that kind of hopeful note that's cast at the very end feels a little bit tacked on Mm-hmm. There is a sense that, well, we know we need to change. Like, delete your social media from your phone. Okay, that's one thing we can do. We need to regulate these companies. Okay, but what is the path forward? You know, I I have hope that Tristan and his team at you know the Center for Humane Technology are are they've got their eyeballs on this and they're they're coming up with these solutions. But it's not like we have it all worked out right now.
1: No, I mean, I think that there are all right, so let's let's pan I mean one thing that you're talking about in the dystopian uh, ending is uh, you can cut from all over the world you're seeing street clashes. Um, and then the the guy who was who went from Facebook or yeah, he was like the Facebook Uh, The guy who came up with the like button? No, the guy that was in charge of monetizing Facebook that went to Pinterest. Oh,
0: right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He
1: said, uh, they asked him what he most worries about. And he said, in the shortest time horizon, civil war. Mm. And if that sounds extreme to you, consider what, um, when you look back and read about wars, they start with kindling. And it's like one little moment of kindling that could spark it. We've had them already. We've had the kindling moments. Uh, I'm not trying to be alarmist, but we have had them. You know, we had Charlottesville, Kenosha, where where uh, a 17 year old kid goes around and, and is with a gun to try to protect property. I guess he thought he was in the right. He ends up shooting and killing people, um, and then he's used as a pawn by right wing people like Tucker Carlson and and uh, and Ann Coulter and Donald Trump himself, um, and and they don't care about this kid. You know, like it, it's yeah. it's it's a tragedy that a 17 year old kid went and did that for you know it's a tragedy for him, and and it's a, it's a tragedy for obviously the people the families he affected. Uh, you know, like we've had these skirmishes now so much. We have in, in Portland, on the, we have anarchists throwing Molotov cocktails mm-hmm. at police officers. In Compton, we have people hunting cops. Right. I mean, I'm not I'm not t- picking sides here. This is just what's happening, and so we have the kindling the kindling is in place um i don't think it's our destiny is that but but certainly you know if we if if it is we can look back at now as being as being where when it started right. um and if you look at how twitter twitter's big moment was 2010 the arab spring right when everyone's in Tahrir Square in Cairo and and calling for the end of, of the Murab- yeah. mur- yeah, some, Mubarak Mubarak yeah Mubarak yeah Mubarak era he'd been a, a dictator in Egypt for you know decades and and they depose him and the same thing happens it replicates across uh, um you know the Arab world and it becomes Arab Spring and if you look at it now only Tunisia has come out of it in a, in a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, Libya is, is on the verge of a, a, even more civil war looking like Syria. Syria is a, a shell of itself. Um, ISIS came up out of it. And, and how did ISIS become so strong? They recruited on Facebook. You know, how did mm-hmm. Charlottesville um, rally happen? They recruited on Facebook. So uh, the social media can be beneficial, but it's not in itself beneficial. It's like this medium that it does tend towards the dystopic even when things seem to be going well, it can twist and turn on you um, and so that's I think what you're talking about the dystopic ending, right mm-hmm. um so how to how to fix it at the end of this movie um, one way is to um, bust these companies up
0: you we know? Need, yeah we yeah. need they need to be broken up broken you know, up we need to get. Elizabeth Warren, you know, either running the the Justice Department or the FTC, because she's on top of uh, the anti competitive nature of 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 these of these companies, and there's just no reason that they should be as large and as powerful as they are.
1: Right? Like Instagram came up independently as Facebook. Facebook gobbled it up. WhatsApp came
0: up independently. It got gobbled right, like, up. F- like certainly, WhatsApp and Instagram should be separated, and Google Facebook. and YouTube. Yeah. Google and YouTube right. should be separated. Yeah, and it, you know, look, there is something to be said for like these, all these talking heads. These guys are all became super successful <laughs> as right. a result They're, of their involvement in tech. They're right. all worth tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars, right? Because of their involvement in this infrastructure and a lot of uh, how they learned how to create these persuasive technologies and these these sort of, you know, the bells and whistles that get packed into this, they learned at Stanford in B.J. Fogg's persuasive technology lab. Hmm. B.J. Fogg, who's a master of behavior change, he's an amazing guy. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. We've been going back and forth, scheduling thing. But they took what they learned in his lab and then kind of weaponized it to create this addictive, you know, like call and response relationship with the mobile apparatus. Yeah,
1: it's um, and yes, there's a certain amount of guilt. I think that some of these people in the movie are must be feeling. Um, they didn't see it coming. The guy that created the like button, um, what's his name? You have him listed here, Justin uh, Rosenstein. Justin
0: Rosenstein. Yeah,
1: he was like, we. Our whole goal was to spread love and connection. They didn't see it coming. Right. They were playing chess and didn't realize it. Um, you know, I'm not, I, you know, they they didn't see it. They, they're so smart, but they didn't see this coming. But, you know, maybe they couldn't see it coming because they were creating something like the like button. They weren't, you know, the, it's like all the different departments created this greater computer mm-hmm. mind, yeah. um, you know, this big brain like that Jaron talks about. Um, and so they couldn't see it coming. And, uh, and now that they do see it coming, it's it disturbs them and they're trying to get people to engage with the fact that this isn't isn't healthy um google it's
0: not it's not a partisan thing no so in the in the drama around the teenage boy you see him get radicalized by way of youtube but They 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 specifically you know create some you know uh, fictional Mm. you know faction you know that he gets radicalized into because they don't this is not a Republican liberal thing. Trump makes no appearance in this documentary whatsoever, and the only politicians that kind of offer sound bites are Marco Rubio and Jeff Flake, both Republicans who are sounding the alarm for this being problematic. So this isn't a conservative liberal thing. Anybody shouldn't be. Well, it shouldn't be. Yeah, everything gets weaponized and everything, you know, becomes politicized. Yeah. But in truth, anybody who's looking at this clear-eyed and objectively will understand that this is a disease. It's a pox on our society. And once we lose the ability to effectively and communicate with each other, as Tristan Harris says, it's checkmate on humanity. That's how big this is. Yes, civil war. I don't think that's overreaching to say that. When you look at what's happening right now, we're seeing the early stages of what could become a failed state.
1: Definitely, I mean, and and I think what Jaron talks about is like a place where we can't solve any of the problems like you had mentioned, um, because uh, all we have is this um, contentious uh, political arena and authoritarians running everything Mm. and no clear idea of what to do, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, that, that's what he he's worried about. A hundred years out, he is worried about our ability to solve any problems whatsoever. Um, failed state absolutely is 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 something to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, you also got to be concerned about the kids. I mean, uh, we didn't get into what they talked about that, but they're talking about spiking suicide rates of, of, of girls between 10 and 14 years old. Yeah. I mean, 10 and 14 years old. Uh, that's usually there aren't, 10-year-olds don't Horrific. do that. 10-year-olds don't do that you know, and so, uh, obviously between 14 and 17, it's a spiked rate as well. That's something you maybe could, could understand why, mm-hmm. but between 10 and 14. So what we might feel is FOMO as adults, um, little kids are thinking of, I wish I, w- I wasn't me and this is the evidence yeah. why. So they're always seeing that evidence of why they don't want to be themselves. Yeah. And, and, um, and so, yeah, so it's it's, it's, it's emergency time and Zuckerberg doesn't feel, doesn't seem like the type of guy that could fix it. He has to be imposed upon. Well, he,
0: I mean, he's as feckless as ever. The talking, the sort of sound bites that they share of him, you're just like, seriously? Like, you know, he's not even addressing this at all.
1: And what about the Google guys? Remember, don't be evil was their whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's that gone. You don't hear that
0: anymore. Like, where are those guys there's a fast company article that I'll also link up in the show notes uh, that was published on nine eleven of this year, and the the headline is: We can have social media as we know it, or we can have democracy. Yeah, like, that's how dire and serious this is. It's as serious as a heart attack, and you know, it's it's terrifying. And I can't stop thinking about this movie, and I can't overstate how important I think it is to that everybody you know watch this and. Have conversations about mm-hmm. it. At the same time, I would be you know, remiss and not calling out my own duplicity here. <laughs> you, know, my, you and I uh, me too. Have both I mean, I have an entire career because of social media. Right. Like there, there is some logic to this idea that it is a tool and if used appropriately, it can it can be beneficial for other people and for ourselves. It's mm-hmm. given me a career but one of the things that they kind of dispel in the documentary is that trope of it's just a tool it's neutral right, right. And, and you can you know you can use it for good or you can use it for evil and the, it it kind of belies it pulls the pulls covers on that trope to say it's not actually neutral but you know yeah it's like
1: well i think this you, you
0: podcast can't. is transmitted over the internet right. and people find out about it because of social media well, I have f- a Facebook account. I have a. I right. have an Instagram account. I post there.
1: Well, but in podcasts, new media in general, if you look at podcasts or any sort of new media, and podcasts being the most uh, successful form of new media, I think that we've ever seen. You know, blogs mm-hmm. couldn't c- touch what podcasts are doing. Blogs are dead. Yeah, blogs have, and they never really. You know, it's just another website. But but podcasts are doing uh, financially, but also culturally. Um, It's a whole nother thing. And that's new media. And one thing they they kind of, this movie kind of looks at Steve Jobs as this figure and as if social media somehow twisted his dream of the computer being the most important tool Mm. for human evolution when in reality, Steve Jobs' parting shot was the iPhone, which is probably the number one tool which gave us podcasts and gave us social media to this level, the smartphone. Um, I don't think the hardware is... uh, they, they got you gotta touch the hardware too. the hardware is the problem too. you know when you can get notifications and you can get this stuff right in your pocket mm-hmm. um, and that you can watch it right here, uh you're never far from it. I think that is is uh you also gotta call out Apple. I mean, you know if you're gonna call out Facebook and Google and everyone else mm-hmm. uh, Instagram, you can call out Apple too um, but you can also call ourselves out right so like we were we were talking about um. Yes, you you've got your whole career in this podcast, and here I am sitting here. And my biggest success uh, so far has been able to collaborate with David on his book. And he is, uh, you know, he he can, he he's not famous from social media; he's famous from the podcast. But that fueled his social media, which allowed the book to become this mega hit and and gave. So there, there's things that come out of this that are positive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but look at the way David uses social media; he uses it; it doesn't use him. That's he the, follows just, that's nobody. The difference, right? That's the difference.
0: I don't even think. Does he even have an iPhone?
1: I don't even know. I don't
0: think so. Right. No, no, so I don't his, think so. His fiance manages she all has of the that. IPhone, And yeah. yeah, he doesn't like, she'll shoot a video of him and post it, but he's not at home seeing who commented on his thing. <laughs> no,
1: he doesn't give a shit, <laughs> give a shit about
0: yeah, that. Yeah, I know. No. And he's like the most inspirational figure in the kind of fitness, you know, self improvement space on the internet
1: essentially because he, he doesn't, he's not a slave to that stuff. You know, like, like I, I am like, I want to see who commented. I care Mm -hmm. about all that stuff. Um, But also, you know, you, I, I, I'm not going to go as far as saying there is no free will. Like you can, I go on YouTube and I watch the Daily Show and other late night snippets on YouTube. And that's the only thing I use it for. And I go in with a specific thing I wanna watch and I get the fuck out and I don't watch their queued up videos. So you can use it as a tool, you can. But the the larger thing is just because you can doesn't mean it's easy for everyone to do that.
0: One comfort that I take because the documentary sort of, uh establishes this idea that these AIs are all powerful, like oh, we don't even know what they're doing and they're controlling yeah. all of us. And it's now it's beyond our control. This idea that, you know, w- we're going to, uh, you know, live in this, uh, you know, kind of Terminator world where the computers are running, where they're <laughs> like, it's already happening, Right. right. But here's the thing. Yeah, I ain't that great. Because like, <laughs> sometimes I'll watch a YouTube video because I wanna see like some knucklehead say this <laughs> stupid thing. You know, it's like, oh, let's see. Well, let me see how bad this argument is. And then I get served up all these videos as if like, that's the person that I like. and I, Or I'll like, buy something. Like, right. oh, I bought a pair of shoes from an ad that I saw on Instagram. And then I get served up more and more ads for that. And it's like, well, I just bought the thing. I don't need it anymore. Yeah. Like, why are you doing it? So it's like, it's very rudimentary still. You're, but the saying, point you're
1: is, saying the good news is tech doesn't work.
0: Well, it's <laughs> Te- not. Tech it's often not doesn't like, work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, it's hilarious. Like if I, I'm like, and I'll think like, oh, if I watch this video, then the, then I'm gonna get all these suggested videos right. all of a sudden. And that happens every time. Yeah. So yeah, just being like, oh, that's why they're serving me up that video because I click yeah. that other thing and being aware of that. Look, you can delete your social media apps off your phone. I go through periods of time where I do that. Then they always find their way back. Yeah. You can grayscale your phone. You can, I mean, one thing that I think is 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 really important is turning off your notifications. Yes. So you're not just constantly inundated with bells and whistles all yes. day long. Um, that's an, That's one way to take greater control of your sanity. And I think just having conversations about this stuff, like, you know, as a parent of teenage girls, I'm very connected to, the ills of you know what these platforms are doing to young people and when you layer the pandemic on top of it and now like the cre- we didn't even talk about the fact that California is on fire right now and the <sighs> sky's orange you know all of this is contributing to a, a, a very unhealthy state of mind in young people mm-hmm. and it's really tragic and i'm seeing kids cracking out there mm-hmm. like friends of friends who have teenage kids who are having a really hard time. And you know, my family's not immune from that. It's been really challenging and social media is not helping. It's making it worse. No.
1: So just real quick, um, a couple of things on uh, their solutions. One is breaking up the big tech, the other is regulation. What kind of regulation? One suggestion was a data stream tax. Like the more data they take from you, the more tax they pay the government. which would meet, like which would idea. which would limit like they basically be more strategic about taking and then there's a more radical version of where if they take your data and they earn money off it then you get money.
0: Yeah, I mean, it should be, um, the yeah, default you know, you shouldn't paid. be that they own the data right. and you have to try to get it back. It should be that we own our own, our own data and yeah. we can make the choice of whether we want to allow people access to that or not.
1: And ph- Australia is phasing in a law that basically uh, Facebook has to pay, I think it's Australia, has to pay um, the publishers if they if they're articles wind up on the platform. Right, I mean, and, that's radical. And, and they're talking about closing. That is a major Facebook is talking of, about getting out yeah. of Australia.
0: Yeah, because of that. They'll, there's no way they'll stand for that. But I think we need to see some experimentation in this realm. I yeah. know that Twitter is like beta testing a subscription model. Like what if you just had to pay 10 bucks a month to have Twitter? Like I'd probably pay that to have access to yeah. that platform. And, they don't and then strip away all the other, like if you can create a different model it's the ad model that's yeah. driving this, right? So if we can figure out, we can pivot away towards a healthier, um, you know, version that still allows these people to like it's a it's a capitalist enterprise, like, I, you know. So yeah. I, I I don't begrudge that at all, but no. not when it comes at the sacrifice of human dignity and health and the degradation of the social fabric of. Our democratic principles.
1: Absolutely, I think Jack could be the guy that does the most uh, experimenting and and gets it gets it done quicker. Um, Even though Twitter is in some ways the most problematic of these because it's so polarized on Twitter, um, he also seems to be the one trying to do the most. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, Google seems as bad as Zuckerberg and Facebook is. Google seems completely out of touch. Like Google is not even trying to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least Zuckerberg realizes he has to say something every once in a while. Like, I don't hear from Google ever yeah. on YouTube. I mean, to me, they are, uh, it's appalling what's happening on YouTube. And, that's, and Sundar yeah, just, yeah. He,
0: he, I mean, he seems like such a nice guy. Yeah. Like he's very polished and camera ready and he's very likable, but he's not the face of the platform and the way that Jack is with Twitter yeah. or Mark is with Facebook right. and and Facebook just feels irredeemable to yeah. me at this point.
1: It's 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 um it's crazy and then talking about the fires here and in Oregon in Oregon there was rumors going on on social media that Antifa was starting the fires in rural Oregon mm. which is like Trump country and and like the fact that it's ever even brought up while people are running for their lives it's appalling. Um, and it just fuels my suspicion that 2020 is the 2012 that they warned us about. <laughs> like oh, the Quetzalcoatl? Like, like, like you gotta give it to the Mayans because a plus minus uh, eight like years- Like a
0: Daniel is, Pinchback kind of way? You yeah, mean? like yeah. in a Celestine prophecy yeah, kind yeah, of way. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, like 2012 was supposed to be like the beginning where everything ends or gets better. Um, and it's actually 2020, not 2012. And it's that Buck, Buckminster Fuller quote that- uh, that I sent you that it was mm-hmm. in the movie, something about how like it's gonna be touch and go between uto- dystopia and utopia right. with human, with you know we're either gonna go from oblivion or between oblivion and utopia, it's gonna be touch and go and we won't know until like the last act what's gonna happen. Cause these obviously, our technology trends towards both simultaneously. Mm. And that's what we're talking about here. Uh, but if we're gonna get to utopia, And leave oblivion behind, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah.
0: Well, it does feel like an inflection point. And I certainly concede that, you know, it could go either way. And it's it's up to us. It's up to us. It's up to us. And so if there is a way to leverage these platforms for good, certainly that's what I'm about. But I think it's incumbent upon all of us to shoulder the responsibility of getting active having the conversations that need to be had around the health of these platforms and the health of our families because the stakes could not be higher right now
1: and and activism when you come down to it is is just talking to people you know it's it's you know activism on a big on on the scale now it's all online but it used to be phone banks and knocking on doors and for you it could be making some phone calls i plan to call people uh, as the election closes in and talk about this kind of stuff vo- voice to voice i'm going to take some time and i'm going to call people and that's the activism i'm going to do around this and mm-hmm. i'm going to implore them to uh think of love first and and you know obviously i'm going to advocate for me that means voting for biden over trump in in this thing but i also want to talk about in general youtube and find out where people are getting their politics from you know where they're going to get their they're getting their information from and have that greater um, conversation as well. And I plan to do that. So uh, that's what I'm going to do. I pledge to do that. I pledge it to you guys now, and I will follow through on that. Um, and Rich can ask me how those conversations yeah, are going. Uh, but those are going to happen in my in my world. Um, and I think the more conversations, let's, using our phones to call people. And if you have to, you get a landline, because to me... <laughs> That's my favorite tech. It's my landline. landline.
0: I haven't had a landline in 20 years. <laughs> it's the best piece I'm of not tech getting I've ever a landline. had.
1: You got to get a landline, bro. <laughs> it's
0: the new, it's is the, that new, the, high the tech. new, like, prepper thing. Like, That's it, man. having a landline. You're telling
1: me Jaron doesn't have a landline? <laughs> I'm sure he does, right? Probably. <laughs>
0: Uh, Meaningful conversation matters now more than ever. And the truth is found in nuance, something I tweeted the other day. I love uh, it. I think it's something we should all take to heart. Uh, All right, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with some show and tell and some wins of the week. And we're gonna take some listener questions. Beautiful. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. All right, and we're back. I think that went well, Adam. I feel good today. My neurons are firing. My whoop score is through the roof. My hurry variability is good.
1: <laughs> Bro, your neurons are firing so hard, <laughs> I'm ducking. <Yeah. laughs>
0: yes, you have to say that because you're the co-host. <laughs> That's right. I'm the I hype feel man. like a walking advertisement for the podcast today. I've got like my whoop on. Yeah. I've got like this bottle that says Four Sigmatic on it. I'm I can smell the sweat over shirt, here. You know? <laughs> oh, is that a Traxman? Um, yeah, like they're not. A uh, podcast sponsor yet, yet, but we're talking to them. Like, I love their stuff. It's really cool. I'm wearing my 10,000 shorts. Malcolm's probably wearing that same shirt right now. I'm sure he is. (laughs) I think I saw him wearing this shirt in an ad. Like, Well, Tracksmith's a really cool brand. They work with Malcolm. uh, Knox Robinson, who's been on the podcast, is collaborating with them on a few things. They're sponsoring Mary Kane, who you know was the woman that- Lindsey Krauss wrote the article about in the New York Times about how she was the fastest runner, but her career was sort of decimated by yep. Alberto Salazar and all yep. that. So they're sponsoring her. Like, I don't know, they make like really cool stuff. Amazing. Like, kind of like their ethos.
1: How great is Lindsey Krauss? Can we just say something? She's the best. I, I think she's just one yeah. of the Have you met best. her?
0: I No, but I,
1: I have emailed with her um, just a couple of times, but I have not met her, but I, th- I find her reporting to be yeah. as good as it gets. Yeah. yeah, I love
0: her. I loved having her on the podcast and she's an excellent Twitter follow. Yeah, yeah, she's fabulous. Um, what do we got? All right, well, the Ethan Hawk TED Talk is out. Yes, it is.
1: <laughs> Give yourself permission. <laughs> it to, is. My favorite part- I love
0: this TED Talk. <laughs> I shared this on social <laughs> media, back to the social media. But like- <laughs> I love Ethan Hawke, and I thought this TED talk was so great, and it leveraged the best of what can be done in quarantine. Mm-hmm. Like he's not on the TED stage. No, he looks like he's in a country western bar in Austin. He's got he's he's got the denim jacket like he's he got on, and he delivers this monologue that makes it look like he's coming up with it on the spot, but clearly, like you know, he's rehearsed this. I like he him is removing actor. the glasses yes, and getting he was into all- it. So well, very done. actor, very actor. Yes, um, I loved it. I loved it. I love, and I was like, "How can I get this guy on the podcast?" Who I I don't know. Ethan Hawke. I've never met him. I'm like, I got to figure out a way to. But
1: he's had such guy. an interesting career path because he's also he's never just pigeonholed himself. He's always you know he's written novels. I know. Um, and now he's like taking on kind of some self help. Uh, you know, he's real stepping estate. into
0: the McConaughey universe. Well,
1: that's the thing. Are yeah. actors the new self help scions? <laughs> I, I don't know. It Ethan, feels that way. Ethan Hawke and Matthew McConaughey. Have you talked about Matthew McConaughey's? No, book? not
0: yet. But before we do that, yeah. like Ethan Hawke just drops bombs on creativity, and yeah. it was so inspiring and so beautifully delivered in a way that you could. Um, it wasn't like here's the ten things you need to do. Like it was a it was like a poetic monologue on on you know the inherent creativity that exists and lives within all of us, yes. this yearning to be expressed. And you know, I just I just thought it was beautiful. And follow give yourself what you love. permission to be creative. Yeah,
1: and follow and what you love yeah. to figure out you can he was talking about his brother, you can live you can have a creative life and not necessarily be a creative, you know, artist or whatever. Right. Um, you can you have a creative life and just do the things you've loved and and do them to the utmost. Um and that's still a creative life. Uh, And he also, but when he is talking about kind of art, it's like, don't, don't worry if it's good. And that's like the hardest thing, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been writing this novel uh, and it was like mid second draft when the baby came and I'll get back to it soon. But like, uh, that's the hardest bit is like, and even just writing an article, the hardest bit is, is this good, you know? And, and the less you think of that, the better, and it's good, you know, give yourself permission to have it not be good. Mm -hmm. You know, like be, you're playing the fool. It's a fool. It's kind of a fool's errand to try to make a living as a creative person anyway. It's like it was never a good career choice. Like even back before when like newspapers were in good shape, we didn't have all this kind kind of fractured attention and fractured outlets. It still wasn't necessarily a smart move to try to become a writer or a painter or well, it a stand-up comic.
0: This outrageous yeah. ego like yes. oh the world needs to hear what <laughs> yes. I have to say are right. you fucking kidding me right. you right. know
1: And he, he's like he's his point is your voice matters all people trying to become creative matters but in a in kind of a flyover view none of it matters either which is also kind of gives you permission to be a fool cuz mm-hmm. if it doesn't matter who gives a shit And and you're not going to be the one to decide whether it matters anyway you could never know what, what's gonna make something a success. It's like a secret sauce recipe that nobody has the, it's a secret sauce no one has a recipe for. Mm-hmm. Timing matters so much. And like, you can't control timing. So, right. um, you know, you can do the best. Do it
0: jo- for the sake of doing it yeah. because it is part and parcel of what makes us human. And,
1: and you know, he doesn't get into the artist way, but you talk about the artist way, the morning pages. I mean, that's a great mm-hmm. way to figure out and just to be creative for yourself, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah. 100%. Yeah. So are actors the new scions of self help? Yeah. Adam Skolnick. Are they? I don't know. It well, feels
1: that way. But it's but not I've, just Ethan,
0: it's Matt. Matt right. So he's so got leading a Leading right? the charge. Leading the charge. <laughs> leading the charge. the <laughs> latest chapter in the reconnaissance is. <laughs> this new book that Matthew has coming out called uh, Green Lights, And it is interesting when you kind of look at Matthew's career, how he's had these fits and starts. And then he was kind of a, you know, he, he kind of started off with the, you know, the, the, the dazed and confused Mm. era where he, you know, carved out like a little niche for himself and then, you know, became uh, a sort of cog in the machine of studio rom-com land. And, That played itself out and was never really him. And he had to find his way back to what his sweet spot is. And he's just blossomed into this beautiful, uh, you know, expression of creative humanity. Brilliant and actor. The latest chapter of that are, you know, these snippets. Like he only recently created an, an Instagram account and he'll just like, drop pearls of wisdom. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know he had that. Oh yeah, it's great. <laughs> oh, are you kidding? It's like, oh, it's so, it's, he's so wise and soothing in his delivery. I don't know what it is specifically about him, but it's a guy who has like sort of, um, you know, grabbed the horns of life and created this, you know, path for himself. And there's something to be said for the intentionality that he's brought to his life and his career mm. that is super inspiring. And the way that he kind of conducts himself is so welcoming and inviting.
1: It's like if Wooderson had a master's degree in um, psychology or something. Wooderson from Dazed and Confused. It's yeah, like, it's, right. you know what I mean? Like yeah. the Wooderson, <laughs> Wooderson himself was his own profit, you know, like the idea, he he was the, he was the prophet of that movie. He was, he was the Yoda. He was like, you just gotta, you know, he's go with the flow kind of thing. And then like the, you have the Lincoln ads, you have the Lincoln ads, which are like another kind of version of that, Uh a more sophisticated version. Um, but the reality of, of him is he does have his priorities straight. And, and, um, and so he is a guy to take advice from. I mean, I think you know, both those guys are. Right. So it's interesting though, that they're staking out that claim in that territory. And that is a function of um new media, isn't it? Like that where, where you know, there's a, there's a place now and it's not just them. Look at LeBron James and his voting mm-hmm. stuff and, you know, his promotion of social causes or, or whatever he wants to promote. Um, athletes do it and they've done it for a long time, but it's kind of different for actors, I right. think, to do it. Right, yeah.
0: It has to be the right one. You know who's also incredibly inspirational online as an actor? Who's that? Josh Brolin. Really? Have you you ever gone to his Instagram? No. He is a poet. Really? It's unbelievable. He writes these uh, posts that are just beautiful. Really? Yeah. And at first I I had no idea that this guy had it in him. Check it out. Josh Brolin. Your life is about to change.
1: Matthew McConaughey and Brolin
0: is 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 real I mean it's very um you know he'll just like tell these stories mm. that are really about place and mood. Mm. They're not they're not trying to say anything, but he is able to kind of evoke an emotional response where when you're reading what he's written, you feel like you're there. Like it it it's he's very gifted I like in that it. regard. All, All right. right, so enter Josh Brolin into that universe. There you go, as well. See, yeah. All right, let's stop. Let's stop. What are, uh, we, what are we doing now? We're going to talk about the fanny. Vivos? Stop I got like, I came. <laughs> the beautiful Hollywood stars. <laughs> right, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> you leftist coastal elites, you fawning praise. Yeah, on I these don't want to fawn movie them. stars. I don't
1: want to fawn these movie stars anymore. Um,
0: so I just came straight from the the gym right here. By the way, like some people were, remember how I was like kind of wearing a jacket and like presenting myself in a nice way on yes, the podcast? Yes, I do, I, yes. So some people were like, that's cool. Some other people were like, that doesn't feel authentic. You feel like you're- Really? Yeah, some people were not happy with that. Who so are these people? I don't know who they are, Listeners? but they should be happy that today I'm wearing shorts and I came straight from the gym and I haven't taken a shot. Who do they today? care what you wear? I don't know. <laughs> um, the Vivo, I got these Vivo barefoot shoes. The, Vivo is okay. not a- Sponsor of the podcast, no. I would like them to be. They'd be great um these are the ones that I've been wearing, and they're made out of recycled materials which is, which are great. These are intended for kind of trail running, so there's some like rivets on on the bottom here, but when you're they look like they have more padding on them than they do, I assure right. you it's it's basically just to prevent you from cutting your feet up like yeah, it's no, no, completely no drop, yeah, yeah it's yeah. flat, there's yeah. no padding whatsoever. It's like um, running in Havaianas. They're comfortable, <laughs> and these are the only shoes that I've that I've been wearing lately, um, as I make this adjustment. And I've been See, enjoying. See, I thought it. you I were running say, barefoot. You know, On Running is a sponsor of the show, and they make amazing running shoes. So this isn't—it's not an either-or thing. Um, you know, On are very uh, uh, kind of revolutionary in the traditional running space. Like yep. what they've done with their technology is super interesting, and I love their shoes and their products. This is just an entirely different thing that I'm trying to learn right now. Yeah. I've been having a lot of fun with it. You
1: might go back and forth. You just wanna get your mechanics better, even if you put on running shoes. I yeah. thought when you, there was a shot you put on social media of you on a beach and I thought, oh, maybe you're barefoot running on that beach. But I was
0: actually, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that on the, yeah, I can, I, yeah. my bare feet can handle the sand. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not ready for trail running barefoot yeah. like Tony style.
1: So the Vivo guys, I met them in uh, Catalina at that swim run event. And uh, they told me to wear the everyday shoe Uh around for a while before you start trying to run and like just do them 10 minutes at a time. Like you were saying, this is the everyday shoe. I'm sorry, it's leather.
0: It it does look like leather. How dare you? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bring this in here. My vegan sensibility is offended.
1: I know, my son is probably sleeping on a leather couch right
0: now, I know. You can't blame him, though. Listen, Vivo makes recycled shoes. You should be all over the recycle thing, knowing you. I know, well. Um, on that subject of recycled materials, should we check in on our 30-day single-use plastic oh, challenge? Oh, yeah, let's
1: go. What's going on? <laughs> so how have you been doing with this? Me? I'm I'm changing
0: diapers, bro. I'm, right. I'm oh, you you've I'm opted out. Out. I'm out. You don't need another challenge. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out.
1: You're changing I, plastic diapers.
0: <laughs> let me preface my answer here by saying that uh, I haven't done a great job. Like I think what I said at the la- when we when we introduced this was that I would post something on Instagram and try to enlist, you know, everybody to do this with me. And then I didn't do it. Like I just I didn't post anything on Instagram right. about it. So um that's my bad. Like I'm just you know, I'm trying not. I'm trying to not be on Instagram all the time. You know, I'm okay. trying to be offline. So, you know, I just, f- I forgot to do that and didn't take the time to do that. But why can't a 30-day single-use plastic challenge turn into a 60-day or a 90-day? This is ongoing. This shouldn't have a sunset on it, no. right? This is about changing habits. In terms of my own uh, experience over the last month trying to do this, I would give myself like a, B minus or a C plus, okay. like I've done okay, um, but I haven't knocked it out of the park. And what it has done is exactly what I mentioned last time, which is create a much more profound awareness of how big this challenge is and how difficult it is to do. I will say that I don't really buy stuff. So yeah, I'm not buying bottled water. I'm not buying things in the store that are wrapped in plastic but I'm also not doing most of the shopping for my home of six people <laughs> right. right now. You know, like Julie's going to the grocery store or Mathis is having food delivered, you know, right. takeout food. I don't have control over them. So is so that why you're getting a, a plus? A bunch of stuff ends up at our house that's all plastic. And right. I'm like, Julie, you know, I told her about this and she's been trying to do her best as well. But she's like, look, man, I gotta get this. You gotta it's, get shit It's done. freaking hard, Yeah. you know? And it's just appalling when you look at the amount of garbage that, you know, I've got six people in my house, two older boys, two girls. We, we've had somebody stay with us for a little bit last week in the teepee, and that's a lot of people. And it's really disturbing how much refuse we produce. And this experience has made me more mindful and pay more attention to the choices that I'm making. It's engendered a greater appreciation for how difficult it is to make this switch. You know, I don't have uh, Lauren, I think her name's Lauren Singer, Trashers yeah. for Tossers.
1: Lauren Singer. I don't have a
0: Lauren Singer store down the street from me where I can bring my glass thing and get it filled up.
1: No, So, but you know what we can do is we can enlist the whole family in this cause and everyone can be part of this. That's how it's. That's how you're going to get from C plus to A.
0: Yeah. Well, it's tough. You know, like yeah. oh, my my daughter is not interested. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> how do you get her on board? She's in that phase of like I'm not interested in anything my parents are interested right, in. Right. 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 As right. a point of you know just making a point for you're- herself and trying to. Disassociate, not disassociate, but like differentiate her life from her. She's own. punk rock. I get yeah. it. And my thirteen-year-old, the same. They're trying to figure out who they are, yeah. and they can only do that when they're in contraposition to who we are. So right. I'm okay with that. It's an, cool, it's an exploratory period. Yeah, but it's very difficult for me to get her on board with something like this. Right. So now. she's not plant-based. You know, she is. She's plant-based, but like she'll order, uh, you know, she'll like get uh, Beyond Burger from Carl's Jr. You know, it's like she's, that's <laughs> where she's that. at right I love, now. I love, I love her. <laughs> and listen, you know, I don't wanna talk about, like it's like my, my daughters particularly are at an age right now where, you know, they didn't sign up to be talked about no. on a podcast where hundreds of thousands of people are listening to right. it. And so, you know, I've, when they were younger, it's one thing. And now it's like they have their own lives and yeah. they're entitled to their privacy.
1: Oh, yeah, I get it. I'm not putting my son's face on yeah. any uh, social mm-hmm. media at all, right? Yeah, so I get it.
0: Um, but the challenge continues. The challenge and, continues. Uh, if I find myself on Instagram, I will try to post something so um, we can have a conversation about you know what we time. could oh, do we is, is did, we, we get gonna, Marcus and Anna. Have you thought about Marcus and Anna? From Five giant? yeah, but before I forget. I believe that I said I was going to give away a bunch of stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to have to revisit that next time.
1: All right, we're going to We
0: will do that, but I, we have to be able to solicit everybody's stories from their right. experience of We're going to
1: realign. We're going to re yeah. we're going to recalibrate on had this baby. challenge.
0: You got a baby. I'm using your you having a baby. I had excuse. a baby
1: so this whole thing went <laughs> under. Yeah, um right. But we got to get Marcus Erickson and Anna Cummins in on this. The Five Gyres, the people that started Five Gyres, Marcus is a is has set, they both have great stories. You know, if we got to we'll talk who about who are this. they? I don't know. They who start they are. so they started Five Gyres. They're early in on plastic pollution. They're mm. like they were. Mar- Anna was talking about plastic bag bans twenty years ago. Mm. Um, and Marcus and Anna have a nonprofit called Five Gyres, which is uh, all about researching. And creating citizen science around the plastic marine plastic pollution problem, Mm. Um, Marcus once uh, built a boat out of uh, plastic water bottles and sailed it to the uh, Pacific Garbage Patch Mm. outside Hawaii. Um, He's paddled the Mississippi River. That's
0: different from David David Rothschild in his Plastica Plastica boat, right?
1: Different, Mm -hmm. but around the same time, they were both doing that. Um, but what Marcus has done is made it his entire life, which is going to all the different gyres, um, trawling for plastic particles. What is a gyre? A gyre are these currents, like the great current systems in the oceans. There's five of them. And so the North Pacific, South Pacific, North Atlantic, South Atlantic, and then the Indian Ocean. And they all have these current systems that, that, that bring water into the center of these oceans and then spin it back out. Got it. And so what ends up happening is a lot of the plastic trash gets swirled into these gyres and broken down mm. into into particles. And so when he went out to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which he'd heard about, it sounded like a big landfill in the middle of the ocean, but in reality, it's a lot of water and just pl- like tiny particles. Micro. There are some big stuff, mm. but it's very rare. It's
0: like a gelatinous, soupy. Yeah, thing, it's almost right? like
1: plankton. It's, it's like, I remember being, when I went with the Five Gyres and the expedition in the North Atlantic, um, we would trawl in the bluest water you could ever, have ever seen, you know, blue, the, so blue, so clear. And we'd still come up with these plastic mm. particles that were like look plankton sized. Mm. And so uh, they created this organization. They, they have ambassadors that go and talk about plastic pollution. Ab- they advocate for, yes, we can all reduce our plastic um, reliance and single use plastic, but also solutions are upstream. We need to stop plastic plants from being built. We need to create pass laws to make it illegal to have plastic bags, you know, plastic bottle bands, single use plastic bands. That's kind of their focus because mm. you can't fix it on an individual basis in time. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is that this these particles are everywhere now. They're in the Arctic ice cores. We've talked about this before. So, um, you know, we are the plastic age. Uh, and anyway, they're great. We got to get them on this on podcast. Yeah, that's cool. I would yeah. love to do that. I yeah. mean, there
0: are some things that are happening right now technologically. Yeah. It seems, on a surface level, that creating an analog to plastic that is biodegradable and dissolves in water shouldn't be that difficult. You think? Uh, you think? But Obviously, a lot of that,
1: a lot of that stuff that says compostable, it's only compostable if the recycling center that your stuff goes to has the machine to break it right. down and almost none of them do. Mm. So the the smoothie place that has the compostable thing, it's not the type of thing you put it in the landfill, it dissolves to soil. No, it needs to be heated in a specific way and they rarely aren't. That's they really aren't.
0: depressing to hear.
1: Yeah, so just so you know. So it's always better to bring your own bottle like you have, your water mm-hmm. bottle, just bring that. It's always better to bring mm-hmm. your own, right? That's the key. Yeah,
0: sometimes they won't fill it though in the age of the COVID. Sometimes,
1: yeah, Yeah. that's the the COVID. That's the other thing.
0: that's You go to Starbucks. It's complicated, this stuff. Not that I go to Starbucks that often. My daughters like it. And um, you bring your own thing and they won't fill it. And then they're like- well, they'll pour it in a plastic cup, and then you can pour that plastic cup into your thing, and then that plastic cup gets thrown out. And it's they, like, well, that defeats the whole purpose of the fucking thing. Well,
1: that's been happening. Yeah, like, so, like that—that's—that's a—that's—that's that's thats a lo- that's, thats been yeah. thats pre covid You yeah, sometimes know, run into yeah. that, but now it's probably even more so. Um, yeah. All it's, right. Um, Let's yeah. move on.
0: Let's get to the wins, man. We need some wins. We need
1: some wins. You go. You're, you we go. You go. Pivot win.
0: away from the the dystopia. So. Um. First win of the week here is uh, the triple uh, to love. back to swim run. We swim can't run. get away from swim. <laughs> we the, talk about the greatest sport in the history of mankind. I know <laughs> um, it's the greatest sport. Actually, you- by the way, I got an email or a DM notification from from Michael uh, from Otillo. They just put out a video. That's like a retrospective on the history of swim their, oh. their race series, and oh. they kind of go through the origins and all through right. over the years and clips from all the races, all right. when it started and everyone was had backpacks on and all that mm. kind of stuff. Uh, and I made I have a, like a cameo, like a couple of oh, comments nice. from interviews in there. You yeah, made we it should link there. up that video. It's cool. And Then you, for people that are new to this and they don't even know what we're talking about, it gives you a retrospective. on Love it. Like, This sport. And I haven't one, it's seen so beautiful. it. Beautiful. Cool. In any event, because the swim run races are like all races are getting canceled. Although I think they did do end again. Didn't they conduct a race?
1: They did end again. And then they did the Utila final 15, which is right. always an option of the regular world championship weekend. But this time it was the only thing available.
0: Right. But the world championship race not happening. Was canceled. Cancelled. So they did a final the, 15K of that. The, the world champion of the whole thing. Yes. Um, decided to... Uh, instead, because of this race getting canceled, to do to swim run the entire Stockholm archipelago. Yes, <laughs> which is insanely huge. Anybody who's been there knows it's like there's thousands of islands in this archipelago, uh, and it involved eighty and eighty kilometer eight, doing eighty kilometers a day of swimming and running. Uh, the world championship race is seventy five kilometers, more so, so, so like a, doing it was two hundred and
1: sixty uh, kilometers altogether.
0: altogether. yeah. so eighty a day, but they did three. so it was three, three days. days. started um,
1: Friday at like four in the morning.
0: and you talked to these guys. So break I did this before down. they
1: left, George, uh, I'm gonna mispronounce him. Uh, Giacomo Giacomo, but Giacomo,
0: Yeah, probably, uh, you probably don't pronounce the sorry B. Giacomo Giacomo. George. We don't know
1: world champion. Look, we're
0: American. We don't know what we're doing.
1: Yeah. So what he told me was that there is a lot of, uh, there are maps and charts that they can use to create their route for the second day. Cause the second day was basically the, the world championship course. Right. And the third day is closer to Stockholm and it's, and, and they're swimming in a, a shipping channel part right. of the time. Right. And, uh, and so they, that, that, and people had been to those islands. But there are islands that they nobody had even really been to mm-hmm. um, in the top part. So where they started at Ahoma.
0: Like way out on the outer reaches? It's regions. way out.
1: And so they didn't go to every island, but they um, they did go to 90 islands. Wow. Over the course of these three days. And it was,
0: how many of them did it?
1: I think it was six and four of them were did the whole thing. And the other team was gonna switch off uh, swimming and running legs. Mm-hmm. And they only had one boat. That was their whole support was one boat. Mm. So they would like all their food and everything was in that boat. So when when they left on their swim run leg, they had to bring whatever food and nutrition they were gonna use on that run part also, and then get back in the water, get back to the boat. And so they couldn't really separate they had to kind of stay together and hang together because their only support was one boat. And especially at the end, when they're going through the shipping channel, you have to have a boat. You know, you right. can't you can't be out there on your own. No one see you. And so, uh, yeah, so I'm looking at what they told me. 90 islands, 210 K of trail running, 50 K of open water swimming in three days. Wow. I mean, that is beast. That's a lot. That's a lot,
0: dude. A lot in rough waters. And, and you know, I saw some of the, the Instagram story clips. Like it was the weather didn't look so great. Yeah, it got it A lot got cold. Of wind and rain got, and it cold. got cold. So they had yeah. to
1: they had to move it up. I think they were going to do it at another time, but then and then the the, the weather started mm-hmm. to turn to fall. And fall in Scandinavia. <laughs> fall in Scandinavia <laughs> is not like fall in <laughs> Southern California.
0: <laughs> no. no. And and the shipping like the exposed swims where you're in these shipping lanes, it's not just that it's dangerous because of boats, it's that with that exposure, you get like high seas okay. conditions, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, the pig yeah. swim in the in the world championship course. Like that's the the choppiest and the most tumultuous of the waters because mm. you you're not getting the wind breaks from having the islands, the islands, you know, yeah, preventing the that kind of chop.
1: It does look like there was a lot of glassy um, seas and certainly in the early stages. I mean, it looks beautiful. Right. I mean, I, I'm so impressed with them. No, it was eight it's people. Pretty cool. It, it looks like eight. And so people. did they camp? Eight, eight did people. They, four teams. Did they, four teams. Did
0: they? Where did they sleep and stuff?
1: So I think at night they they found an inn. Like the first, you know, they got to the they got to an inn. I think they slept the night in an inn, and then they started, and then they got to an inn mm-hmm. for the second. They slept in inside. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. Well, good on them. Congrats. That's Awesome. Keeping the flame alive on swim run when yep. there's no organized races. Uh, Tony Riddle's Three Bear Peaks was another win of the week for mm-hmm. me, but we already we already talked about that. And you have one more.
1: Yeah. Uh, Maya Gabera, the Brazilian big wave surfer, uh, surfed a 73 and a half foot wave at Nazare. It was uh, That's the biggest wave ever surfed by a woman. And it was the biggest wave surfed by anybody in the winter season, 2019, 2020, which is big wave surfing. That's their Danica Patrick moment, basically. That's amazing. Um, It's amazing. Maya uh, surfed this wave in February, um, but it was only this week was when the world surf league released that it was as big as, as that. Uh, Basically what happens with big wave surfing is every May um, people submit photos and videos and and they try mm-hmm. to decide which you know, they have the big wave awards and they try to decide who's, who's got the best ride of the year, who's got the biggest wave of the year and, and, and so on. And uh, this year there was no big wave banquet because obviously uh, COVID. And so they've been releasing these awards piecemeal on zoom sessions that are broadcast by uh-huh. the surf league. Um, and, you know, we already knew Kai Lenny had the big wave of the year for the men and, and ride of the year and uh, was uh, all that. But uh, the women's, were, they were waiting because uh, Maya Gabera and then a French woman named Justine Dupont um, also surfed a massive wave at that same toe-in compen- competition where Kai set his, at set his mark at Nazaré, 70-foot wave. It was the cha- Nazaré Toe Challenge and where Maya set her uh, 73.5. And basically, they couldn't decide, like the committee couldn't decide who had the bigger wave between Maya and Justine. And so they brought in... Uh, wave engineers from Kelly Slater's Wave Co. that have you know All the right, surf frame, surf, surf ranch. Rank. They brought in uh, oceanographers from Scripps. They brought in aerospace engineers from USC. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> And together, how did they make that decision? They looked at the cameras uh, that were taken and the angles and the amount of light in the sky and the tide tables, and they and they looked at the imagery and the stuff in the image, images, and they tried to de- determine uh, based on all of that who had the biggest wave. And um, Maya was surfing in the men's competition. She was teaming mm-hmm. up with a male surfer from Germany named Sebastian Stutner, who's um, I think
0: he did he. Clearly surfed a huge wave too. I believe there was a video of him surfing yeah. Nazare that was circulated pretty much. That was widely, I think like twenty nineteen or twenty. Tw- no, I'm oh, like I'm talking uh, about like a week or two a ago. A week ago? Yeah.
1: He's he's a beast. I mean that guy the wave the, the waves uh there can be so big and the wind can be so heavy that um There are basically four foot waves on the big eighty foot waves. You know, like that. So they have to ride these heavy boards in order to stay upright on these massive mountains of water. And the reason that the waves are so big there, real quickly, there's a story I wrote for the New York Times that'll be out uh, when this is out. It comes out Wednesday. We're recording it on Monday. We release on Mm -hmm. Thursday. Mm -hmm. So it'll be out there, and we can put it in the show notes. Um, But there is an offshore canyon that's deeper than the Grand Canyon that can capture some of the swell that comes in and it speeds it up and then it bends it Northwest. And so when there's also a Southwest swell in at the same time, those two swells meet and there's a magnification effect and amplification. So typically a 15 foot swell can be a 30 foot wave if it hits a reef, right? Uh-huh. In this case, a 15 foot swell can be a 70 foot wave because the Canyon all of a sudden abuts a 40 foot sandbar. And so that vertic- verticality right. plus these two swells and that sped up swell and the bending of it converges. And it creates this incredible wave that crashes on the cliffs, right? You know, where there's a lighthouse and a fort and it's Yeah, you always know
0: Nazare because you see that lighthouse yeah, in the insane. foreground. And that, there's something about that camera angle yeah. that gives you, like it creates a dramatic perspective because you see that, that um, tower yeah. in the foreground on the left hand side always, it makes the wave look bigger. So when you say- Maya surfed a 73 and a half foot wave. When I'm thinking of the videos that I've seen of people surfing Nazare, they look like they're well over a hundred feet.
1: Right, so when Garrett McNamara was like the first guy to to right. surf Nazare. And so what happened with, I, t- I, I talked to to Garrett for this story. Uh-huh. and so
0: I've tried to get, we've, we've gone back and forth about getting him on the podcast too. Oh, he's a hell of a storyteller. Like <laughs> he's great. Situation. He's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so he basically said that in two thousand five, he's he was he came up in the nineties and in um Oahu yeah, as old as, guard. A, he's old guard. So he was when Laird Hamilton was was inventing tow-in surfing. He was he was there in the early gen, and then around um you know the, in the middle two thousands, late two thousands, tow-in surfing became passe. Kind of like the big wave guys were like, it's not cool. It's mm-hmm. cooler to paddle in. Why do you need this gas guzzler? It's not the purest. You know, the sports purists were kind of. Turning the nose up at it, yeah. but Garrett wanted to surf a hundred foot wave, and mm-hmm. so he never did. And so, in two thousand five, some bodyboarder from Portugal who lived there um, sent him an email saying, "You got to check out this wave." And he didn't even get it. It was like floating in his archives until his wife found it in 2010. And so he got it and he's like, okay, let's go check it out. So he went over there. He teamed up with a surfer from England called, named Andrew Cotton. And the two of them created this, they decided to try to surf it. And so in 2011, I think he surfed a 78 foot wave there that mm. was went all over the news, went viral. Mm-hmm, I remember that. And that one was estimated to be over hundred feet at the time. Now it's considered 78 feet. The because record, you measure from the back? You measure from the trough. Of the wave, and then you just measure it up to the very tip of the lip of the wave. Um, it's just because the reason people thought it was over a hundred is because what you're talking about—that angle from above will always make it look bigger. Uh-huh. So the angle, the camera angles, kind of gave it this distorted view that it was over a hundred feet. Mm. But so far, nobody um, on paper has surfed a hundred-foot wave. There, eighty-foot is the men's record. Um, in 2011, he surfed it. Still, there was a lot of most surfers were saying, Oh, it's a it's a messy wave, it's just a slope, it's not like Jaws or Mavericks. This like it, people just poo-pooed how hard it is to surf there and uh-huh. how, how dangerous it is.
0: I mean, it's uh, literally like a skyscraper's about to fall on you. Dude, who knows? I, I'm not I'm not <laughs> sure why people would poo poo it to me, yeah. but
1: you know, we're not big wave surfers, yeah, exactly. so you know, whatever. But um, he would kept trying to convince people to come surf there. And in 2013, Sebastian Stutner showed up, Maya Gabera showed mm-hmm. up. Maya had a very famous accident there, and she almost died. She was pulled from the water unconscious. She was given CPR to to be resuscitated. She ended up breaking her fibula, um, herniating a disc. It required multiple back surgeries, spinal fusion surgeries. In the aftermath of that a- accident, she was hated on by big wave legends who were basically saying, you know, you were – irresponsible and you put people in danger and blah, blah, blah. Well, in 2018, she set the woman's mark for, for riding a 68-foot wave and put that in the Guinness Book of Records for the first time. And now she's surfed a 73.5-foot wave, breaking her own record.
0: And I'd never heard of her
1: yeah. until now. And, uh, and she lives there in Nazare full-time. She's a great interview. It was an honor to do the story. Justine Upton turned out her wave was 70 feet. Kai's was 70 feet. So Maya, for the first time, has created this, like I said, the Danica Patrick moment. Uh, woman Very actually cool. uh, having the biggest wave of the year. Nice. Yeah, pretty
0: incredible. Hats off to Maya, Yeah. chapeau. Um, so that'll be in the New York Times on Tuesday?
1: Wednesday. Wednesday. Wednesday sports, the sixteenth. Yeah, should lead the it should with be some epic photos. Dale? Epic photos and some video. Cool. Yeah. All right, man.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well let's do some listener questions. Let's do it.
3: Hey Rich. Hey Adam. My name is Mark. I'm from Germany. And I'm a nutritionist, an athlete, an environmentalist, and of course one hundred percent plant based. inspired by your podcast, Rich. My question has to do with the climate emergency we find ourselves in. I already impose a lot of restrictions upon myself, like choosing my bike instead of my car, reducing the amount of plastic I buy, increasing the amount of local and seasonal fruits and vegetables, not taking planes, and many things more. And these restrictions have actually improved my quality of life, especially the plant-based diet. However, I'm also struggling to choose between what is unnecessary and should thus be restricted, and what is still acceptable, like using the car for a holiday, creating carbon emissions by watching Netflix, or living in a beautiful but huge house instead of a more minimalistic and environmentally friendly alternative. I'm trying to figure out the right spot between Tom Hanks in Castaway and Leonardo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street. Thanks guys, can use users on air.
0: Um, thank you for the question, Mark. That's a great question. <laughs> uh, it sounds like he's he's more Tom Hanks in Castaway than he is Leonardo DiCaprio in, in Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> Yes, by, by a country mile. <laughs> um This is the dilemma that we're all struggling with, is it not? And I think um, there are things that we can do, which you are already doing. And I applaud you for that. And I'm trying to do the same. Uh, at the same time, I think we need to like acknowledge and just recognize that that none of us are, are living, you know, a completely carbon neutral lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Like we are consumptive beings living in the material world on planet earth. We have an aspiration to live more gently on the planet, to live more in alignment with the rhythms of what serves the ecosystem that we all share. But none of us are immune from... The harms that just our existence creates. And I don't think that anybody is served by somebody becoming, you know, a complete martyr or a recluse. I think that we do what we can and we always strive to be better. If we can, you know, the more carbon neutral we can become, the less that we get on airplanes, the less, uh, you know, Petrochemicals that we're using, all of these things are, are, are great. Uh, but I think we're, we have to think about how can we leverage this message to create a ripple effect with other people, right? So if everybody reduced their carbon footprint 10%, that would be massive and more impactful than you... Living in you know an electric van down by the river and never communicating <laughs> with anyone, you know what I mean? So it goes back to what we were talking about at the outset of this podcast, which is that meaningful conversation matters. So I think uh, where you can create leverage is to engage your community with these ideas, to try to spread them. And what I found, and everybody has their own personal strategy, For how they communicate and share ideas, I found that that what seems to work really well is to make these lifestyle choices seem fun and cool. Mm. Like they're not the purview of an antiquated class of people that you can't connect with, but they're actually awesome, you know, and and we can thrive and live and be happy and fulfilled and connected in a way that perhaps eludes us in our modern world by adopting some of these. Habits and practices. So, I think it's, I think that the evolution for you is not to, you know, become Tom Hanks and Castaway, but to try to be, uh, you know, a, a lighthouse and to be an example of some of these lifestyle principles um, within your community. Because we live in the world, right? You're not, you're not a monk meditating in the cave, right? You're a spiritual being having a human experience in the midst of a lot of chaos and disruption. So how can you be a force for positive change among those people that you're connected with?
1: I like that. I mean, I think, uh, first of all, it's very funny and witty Ending to the question, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm pretty sure that Tom Hanks didn't want to be the guy in Cast Away. (laughs) I I I remember that movie.
2: Uh
1: (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think um, we make choices to live our lives because we like, you know, like the fact that you've had positive reinforcement from the lifestyle choices you've made um, shows that you did it for you as well as for Mm -hmm. any any other reason. You know, yes, you're limiting your emissions, you're limiting your impact. And that's a great thing, but that's a great thing for you as well as for the world. And that's great. I mean, that's, I think that's the ideal, right? Mm -hmm. That you, that, that's the kind of balance that we want to strike where we're feeling like we're living our truth and Mm -hmm. we're feeling good living our truth. And we're actually feeling better than we did when we weren't. And some of it is like so-called restrictions have actually ended up being beneficial to us personally. I think that's great. I think it's amazing that you've done that. Um, And uh, but I, I I think there's also fixes you can do if you if you live in a regular house. I mean, there's a lot between living in a in a tiny home and a big house. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do own your own home, uh, you could install gray water systems cistern to capture rain. You can you can model some environmental technologies that could be then used widespread in your neighborhood or your town. Uh, I think there's things you can do. That could then those kinds of modalities that can be replicated to really fix cities and systemic problems. um, That's another way of going. If you are going to choose to live kind of in the house you have now, hundred percent. And so I think that there, you know, you can just keep going with this, um, but you don't have to live in a certain type of way. You know, Uh you don't have to live in a tiny place to have a big impact, right?
0: and it shouldn't be driven by guilt but rather no. you know this this aspiration to live more connected yeah and
1: you can be minimalist i mean i i don't live i don't have a big footprint uh in terms of where i live but um but some of that is is just kind of the circumstances that you know of of my life mm-hmm. so uh and
0: there's ways to uh correct me if i'm wrong you probably know more about this and i probably should know more about this than i do but when you are um uh, traveling by air, you right. can you can purchase carbon, carbon offsets, offsets or you can find a way to do that travel in a carbon neutral way.
1: You can, you can do carbon offsets or you, know, you can- How do
0: we do that? Do you know about that? That would be something to You look know, into. I, I, I can Because I out. love travel, right. you know, and I, I feel guilty when I get on a plane, of course. I don't buy carbon offsets mm-hmm. for my plane no. rides, but I
1: do know somebody that does. um Or you could be like Greta and just see if you can hitch a ride on a nice right. sailboat.
0: By the way, she's got that documentary coming out soon. Oh, really? Yeah, she was sharing about that the other day. Um, did we answer Mark's question? I feel I feel like you did. All right. Thank you, Mark. All right, Let's moving on. on. Let's hear from Josh.
4: Hey, Rich and Adam. This is Josh from right outside DC. Uh, I just wanted to say I love you guys Are able to kind of go between the format and the interview segments. Um, kudos to pulling it off. My question is more of an ask for advice. I'm a few months away from 30 years old. I've been successful in the traditional sense of monetary relationship, career progression, um, making my way up the corporate ladder at a Fortune 500 company, and probably a lot faster than I ever could have imagined. But I can already see my mindset and the leadership style doesn't quite match up with that of my soon-to-be peers. The um, piece with Dan Butner in July emphasized um, kind of how I'm feeling. Um, I'm a rebel at heart, so I'm comfortable with pressing on the edge of the status quo, but I worry, if, it might be the universe telling me my purpose may lie somewhere else. Um, I know you've both kind of successfully transferred from uh, corporate styles, the more independent channels. And I was wondering if you were sitting in my chair, what would you do? All right. Thanks guys. Bye. And of course, this is great to put on air. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Josh. That's a great question. Uh, First of all, congrats on being successful Mm. on the cusp of... Becoming 30 years old, moving up the ladder, certainly something to be proud of. To mm-hmm. be, you know, really stable and to have a future ahead of you, and um, that's no small thing. And, you know, I, I think there's this this like sensibility right now, like everybody needs to quit their job and like you know go on these vision quests and we've lost sight of just valuing, you know, the product of like hard work and making your way in the world, like that's fantastic. So first of all, you should be proud of what you've created for yourself and you should feel guilty about that. Um, I'm not surprised that you have a little tickle in the back of your mind saying, maybe this isn't my ultimate purpose in life. Um, If you found your purpose in that Fortune 500 company, then more power to you, that's fantastic. Um, but if you think maybe there's something else that might, you know, provide your life with a little bit more meaning and and purpose outside of the context of your career, um, my suggestion to you would be to continue to fertilize and, and and foster that instinct. You know, you may not know exactly what it is right now. It sounds like it's pretty vague at the moment. Um that understanding i think is powerful it doesn't mean that you need to do anything different than what you're doing right now stay at your job it seems like it's serving you well in the meantime knowing that perhaps there might be something else you might want to do later just means that you should be more mindful about your consumptive habits like try to live lean like don't go out and you know lease you know the the BMW because your peers who are in your income bracket, who are sitting in the office right next to you are doing that. Like don't get caught up in the keeping up with the Joneses game that happens with the ascension up the corporate ladder. Mm -hmm. I saw myself do it when I was doing the same thing at a law firm. When my peers would get to a certain point, I felt like I have to upgrade here and I have to upgrade there. And I was quickly you know, living outside of my means. And this is a moment in which you should be you know, banking that cash so that you have choices and mm-hmm. freedom so that when that impulse matures to the point where you have clarity around what might give your life greater meaning outside of your job, you have the flexibility, the freedom, and the opportunity to take advantage of that. The thing you don't want to have happen is the creation of the kind of gilded prison that happens to so many people. And it happens imperceptibly, very slowly over time. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm making good money and I'm moving up and I'm gonna get that promotion and that bonus. So I can not only afford this car, but that new couch, and I'm gonna you know, move from this apartment to the next one. It's a very gradual process, like the frog you know, slowly boiling in, mm-hmm. the, in, in the water. It's not until it's too late that you realize like you're stuck. Now I'm married and I have kids and I've got a mortgage and right. that thing that I wanted to do it's just not possible so I guess it'll happen in the next life like you don't want to be that guy. So live lean, live minimally, save your money, um you know, continue to show up for your job, learn as much as you can, you know, create a network of people, meet as many people as you can and uh and and understand that look you're 29, you've got your whole life ahead of you. Yeah. This is not, you know, a foregone conclusion that you have to stay at this job. You have tons of opportunities that will be available to you throughout your life. Like I just a couple of years ago, I wrote this tweet about how I thought my life was over at thirty. Like you're, you've got a compared to where I was at thirty, it's ridiculous. Like you're doing great. Um, I was in a very different state at age thirty, and yet here I am at fifty three with this completely unique life that I never would have thought possible. And I wrote this tweet about how, you know, basically, you know, just keep showing up for life and anything is possible. And that freaking tweet, like, will not die. Like, mm. it, it continues to get shared. And just today, Upworthy posted it on their Instagram page. to so like, Amazing. a million and a half people. So, like, my phone blew up. And it's it's intended to mean, like, listen, you know, if you think you're stuck in life or on a certain path, you can always reinvent yourself. You mm-hmm. can always do that. You wanna make responsible decisions so that reinvention process can be less painful than it right. needs to be. Um, but don't think that just because you're 30 and at a Fortune 500 company that your life is already scripted out. Right. It certainly is not. One reason I think that, that tweet that I wrote still has life is that you know, people are like, oh, it inspires me and makes me feel like I, you know, I still can make these choices and these course corrections in my life. But I think it also makes people feel better about the fact that they haven't done anything. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, I'm 40. Like, look, he didn't do this until he was 50. So I still have time. You know, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, you know, Life is about constant reinvention. We tend to think of it as static. I'm here and this is who I am and this is what my life is and will always be. be. And that is not the case. You always have the power and the domain and the control to make changes in your life. Just make sure that you're doing what you need to do now so that... That doesn't have to be problematic. That you're not stuck, and you don't want to be that guy with regrets who's like, "Oh, if I had done this differently, then I could have, you know, become a scuba instructor in in Aruba or whatever it is that you know your heart is yearning for."
1: Yeah, man, that's well said. I think uh, setting yourself up for flexibility so you can be responsive to and move and and do what you need to do without nimble. Be nimble. Yeah. Yeah, Not, not to weigh yourself down. Have a go bag. (laughs) I mean, I will correct you one thing. I was never, I I was never on any corporate ladder. Uh Um, I was working in the nonprofit world and then never really made any money, which made it easier in some ways to then leap and still not make any money Yeah. You didn't (laughs) have the ability to create
0: the gilded cage. I didn't have
1: the cage. Uh I didn't have a lot, um, a lot of bills. So, um, but I've certainly also lived in there where I had a lot of bills and was trying to figure it out too, at the same time, mid career. So, you know, I think the idea of, of saving money is good. Um, I think I agree that it doesn't sound like you know exactly which direction to go into yet, or maybe you do. You just didn't say, um, in which case, uh, fertilizing that might mean uh, following that intuition, the things that you love. You follow what Ethan Hawke was saying, mm-hmm. follow what you love to do what is it you love to do and figure out and and figure that out. And if you know what that is and you spend more time doing that, you're kind of fertilizing and watering that. Mm -hmm. I think you can find some pathways um, towards a new life there. I do think it sounds like you already know that you don't want to stay at the Fortune 500 company forever that you're seeing, wait, I could go this far and I'm, I'm seeing the people that are the senior positions in that company and you're seeing yourself and you're like, wait, I'm not really, that's not necessarily me. And that's cool, that's fine. It doesn't mean you have to quit right now. It just means that right. um, you've gotten a viewpoint, and i would I would trust that. sounds like it's an instinct to trust to me mm-hmm. um, and it sounds like you've if you've been successful at this place, you can be successful in anything and right. I think you know that
0: part of the celebration of the entrepreneur that's very much a part of our culture packed into this kind of hustle you know twenty four seven sensibility. Is th- there's a there's an idea with all of that that is to say, if you're not um, founding your startup, if you're not like following your passion twenty four seven, that that you know your life doesn't have value, or that you've missed the point, or something like that. And I think that that pendulum, you know, needs to swing back a little bit to say, hey, you at the Fortune five hundred company. You know, you're doing good. Like that's, you know, you, sh- you shouldn't feel like if you're not like in Silicon Valley, you know, creating the next whatever, that what you're doing isn't, you know, of equal value. No,
1: I don't think we're saying that. But what we're saying is if you're not fulfilled in your job and you haven't built the, the you don't have the payments and all that, mm-hmm. then you still are versatile. Yeah. You can go any direction you want. Versatility. But if you are considering- you know, between staying at the Fortune 500 company and creating the app that's going to save the world, and di- and becoming a dive instructor in the Caribbean, please become a dive cons- instructor in the Caribbean.
0: I will say that. What? What if he could inv- invent the app that saves the world? No, don't do that. No, 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 because that won't won't work that way. We already we already know <laughs> we already from this know. movie, the we social dilemma know. that that goes sideways on us. Please don't create an app. <laughs> What about the app that tells you about the sustainability factor of your consumer purchases? Remember when we were talking about that? No,
1: no, no. I remember reading someone tweeted uh, that she and her husband want to start a uh, venture capital firm to pay people not to do podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did see that, yes.
2: Because
1: yeah. everyone has a podcast Put me on now. the dole.
0: <laughs> You'd have to pay me a lot of money no, you, you podcast. Can, you can keep podcasting. You're good at it. Right. Just- Nobody knew, no more, no more podcasts. <laughs> too many podcasts. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's round this out. Let's One
1: more round question. this out. One more question from Canada.
5: Hi, Rich and Adam. My name is Victoria Asikis. I'm calling from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and you can absolutely play this on the air. I love the podcast and do thank you both for your work and wisdom. My question is with respect to working from home and still trying to navigate your career as a young professional. For some background, I'm 31 years old and a business lawyer. I always used to think of myself as an introvert who craved working from home all the time, especially when it wasn't an option pre-COVID. Fast forward to this now mid-COVID time, and I'm finding myself really struggling, especially as a young lawyer, with working from home for what is soon to be half a year. I never appreciated before the importance of collaboration with colleagues, meeting clients for lunch, creating long-standing relationships both in the workplace and outside the work environment, and the true importance of establishing these relationships, especially relatively early in my career. No matter what point you're at in your life career-wise, we are constantly reminded of the importance of networking, building a book of business, getting out there and meeting people. The problem is this has now been completely turned on its head. We can't have these social interactions, we can't meet people to build business, and we can't truly have those professional experiences where these relationships can thrive. My question is, how do you think the corporate-client relationship will change going forward? As a young professional, what do you think I and others like me should be doing now to try and salvage some of these relationships? while also trying to establish new ones when we can't do it face-to-face in the manner that we've been taught. Thank you, I really hope you consider my question. Mm-hmm. And as someone from Canada, I've got to throw in a go Raptors.
0: All right, Victoria, thank you for the question. That's a great question. I mean, I first, I would say that I'm with you 110% on this idea of being an introvert. I thought I've been training for this my whole life. This is not gonna be a problem. Like this is my default setting anyway. And I've really met my maker with that. And you know, I vacillate between moments of despair and melancholy, with the um, the social isolation of it all. You know, we're not we're not hardwired to be separate, and it has its challenges for everybody. And there's a spectrum. Some people are having a harder time of it than others, of course. But um, I'm sympathetic to the toll that it's having on on all of us, not being able to function and be in the world um, in a way that. We're meant to be, uh, you know. I think the first thing I would say is that there is a sense, you know, part of where you're coming from, feels like you feel like you're the only one in this predicament. But this predicament is something we're all contending with. Mm-hmm. What you're struggling with is the exact same thing that every single person, uh, not only in your field, but all across the world, is dealing with. And just today, there was a, a news thing that popped up that I saw that. You know, there's, there's a good chance that we won't have a safe vaccine until like 2024. Mm. And that's a possibility that we have to um, factor into this. There may not be a short-term, I mean, we're already seven months into this thing, short-term, what does that even mean anymore? But right. there may not be a short-term resolution to this that's gonna get us back into the world in the way that we would prefer. So with that, how do we move forward professionally? Uh, In terms of how we approach our career and how we build a book of business and how we interface with the world. And we're left with no choice but to take advantage of these digital platforms, back to digital platforms Mm -hmm. again, in order to do this. I think one thing I can say um, from experience as somebody who's worked from home for many years at this point and- prior to that did work in an office as a lawyer, um, that it's important that you take control of your daily schedule, otherwise it will control you. So you have to um, set in place a structure that's conducive not only to your productivity, but also to your happiness. I think the idea initially of just being in your pajamas all day and sitting on the couch with the TV on in the background as you're typing away on your laptop might seem appealing, but we've been at this long enough now where most people are realizing that that's actually making them unhappy. Mm. And I think you need to be regimented, diligent, and mindful about what your schedule is. So you get up in the morning as if you're going to commute to your office, and you mimic some version of that in your house. You should have a morning routine and you should have clear boundaries um, that differentiate the workday from the rest of your day Mm -hmm. so that you're creating some uh, structures and a sense of stability and healthy boundaries around your profession so it doesn't bleed into everything. And I think most people are just learning this now uh, and, when you don't have those things in place, then everything becomes like a drab gray. Like you're kind of always working, but not really working. You're not as productive uh, as you could be or should be, even though you seem to have more hours during the day because you're not commuting. And all of these things contribute to this soupy mess of disaffectation, mm-hmm. I found in my own experience. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, getting up, making your bed, putting on the clothes that you would wear to work or, you know, doing your meditation, doing your journaling, taking breaks to go outside, to have an exercise regimen, all of these things are, are crucial. In terms of the professional aspect of your question, how do you build a book of business? How do you remain connected with these people? Look, it's going to have to be on Zoom. The only other thing you can do is to try to engage with people in your locality from uh from, you know, uh, a perspective of doing it, you know, with social distancing. Like, hey, we can meet outdoors at this cafe and sit six feet apart and have a business meeting. I mean, we're seeing this happening in Los Angeles. I don't know what it's like in Ottawa right now, I suspect, because you're Canadian, it's much better than it is here. Um, But- you know, there is some flexibility with travel and physical presence with other individuals. And if you're wearing masks and you're outdoors and you're separated or what, you know, there are ways of doing this um, that are, uh, you know, not as risky, um, that don't mean that you have to be staring at a screen all day long. Uh, you can also be like Adam and get a landline and call people up on the phone. Not everything needs to be on Zoom. Right. Um and you know, making sure that you're staying in, in in touch with friends and family, and doing all of that just for your own personal, uh, you know, well being. But on the professional tip, look, there are very like back. We're going to go back to the social platforms. Like LinkedIn is actually an incredible resource for making contacts, for developing those contacts, for you know, trying to you know, cultivate new business on the client front that's and true. right now that's just the way the world is so um you know suffering is a result of uh it, it, suffering is a is a is directly correlated to the extent to which we we resist what is Resisting, so you can yeah. either resist what's happening right now which is that we're all in our houses. And you can develop a resentment about that and be a victim and say, well, if I wasn't at home, then I could be going and developing all of this business and I could be much more successful than I am. Or you can accept what is happening and educate yourself about how to use these very powerful tools to innovate in your career in a new and interesting way. When everyone's zagging, how can you zig? always looking for the opportunity, the hidden opportunity in what everyone is perceiving as a crisis, right? What is the one thing that no one else is doing that you could do that could give you an advantage in terms of how you're building your network and your relationships that will fuel and underscore your book of business and put you in good stead with your employer?
1: That's awesome, really well said. Um, I'll just highlight a couple things you already mentioned and um, A couple of them are number one, uh, make sure you have that exercise routine. You have that you're taking care of yourself outside of the workplace and you have that getting outside, running, cycling, whatever it is, hiking, walking, whatever you like to do, swimming, make sure that's, that's locked into your program because that'll alleviate some of this stress and it'll get you outside. Cause it sounds like you're just kind of going a little stir crazy, which I get. I understand that. Um, be, uh, I would say, you know, the interesting thing about COVID is it gives us an opportunity to press pause a little bit. You know, that's what one of the power of pressing pause of like, you know, all of a sudden the sky is clear and the traffic, you know, we can't say that now because mm-hmm. of the fires, but you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. there was a pressing pause aspect of COVID that was really nice. And I would say that, um, you know, don't function from a pre-COVID playbook now. Like, yes, you want to advance your career. Yes, it will happen on its own. It's probably happening now without you even noticing it. Um, but don't expect necessarily to have you know picked up this client or that client as easily as you might have before, and don't beat yourself up for right. it you That's know you're point. you're functioning within this new sphere you're accepting what is, and so part of that is. Um, don't necessarily put yourself under so much pressure, like maybe you might have as a Type A person in a, in a different mm. type of environment. Right? You know, you don't want to give your, you don't want to put that kind of pressure on yourself. Also,
0: you have a job. Yeah. A lot of people don't right now. Yeah. Yeah. So focus on gratitude.
1: Yeah, and then ultimately, um, you, you are, we are all going to come out of this, and at some point, this period that seems like you're running in place and kind of languishing in this middle part of your career or, or, you know, not making necessarily getting the terrain that you covering the terrain you wish you had at 31 at some point, you're going to be 35, 36, presumably in the same, same career. And you're going to have this incredible experience of what it was like to be a business attorney in the worst climate for business mm-hmm. in the history of, uh, the, of our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have all this, mat- all this, uh, information that you'll be able to impart on other clients. And it's going to be a wealth of information. It's going to be very positive for you in the future. Mm-hmm. So just getting through this period, staying employed, still working, uh, and then figuring out how to help your clients within this climate, um, all that is going to pay off for you, even if you can't see how right now.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. There's a an adage in the recovery community, which goes like this. I wonder what that would have been like had I been truly sober, right? Mm-hmm. And that is to say that when you're weathering a difficult situation, whether it's like the death of a relative or a divorce or you know some kind of difficult emotionally trying situation, you wanna be your best self. You wanna be your most emotionally, mentally, spiritually fit. It's not just about not doing drugs or, or drinking. It's about emotional sobriety, right? Um, because you don't wanna look back on that experience a year later and think, I wonder what how I would have conducted myself had I really been dialed in. Hmm. You know what I mean? You wanna look back and go, you know what? Like I did the work and I was able to show up 100% and be of service and do it with grace and gratitude. And that's the stuff of esteem building, right? To look back on that and go, you know what? That was really hard, but I was available for all of it. And I got through it. And I feel more empowered as a result of that and more resilient and able to handle whatever life can throw at me.
1: And one day we'll all grow up and tell our grandkids really boring COVID survival stories. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) What's going to really be interesting is how the younger generation not only gets through this, but- the stories that they will tell their kids and their grandkids, because this is very formative. That's gonna be the unusual. real baby
1: boom. Right. Not the during COVID, but post COVID when everyone po- could go party post-COVID. again.
0: <laughs> yeah. no, there's plenty of people partying now as we That's know. That's true, you know I, forgot. I, mean? I forgot. So, I forgot. all right, we're gonna avoid you know pulling on that thread and we're gonna put a pin on it. Until next time, thank you, my friend. How do you feel? I feel good. This was good, I thought. This was good. I'm not
1: even tired yet, but I feel like it's no. coming. It's like it's like nibbling at my synapses. Will,
0: right, yeah, you're gonna c- go home and crash <laughs> exactly. after this. Exactly,
1: I better uh, not. I, have to, I think it's, it's baby time
0: when gonna, I get you home. You gotta take those my, cat naps whenever you can, man. Exactly. If you wanna come over to my house and grab a snooze in the teepee. Hey, that sounds it's good. It's available. Thanks, man. Um, good, man. All right, well, hopefully we're back in two weeks again. Yep. Until then. You can follow Adam at Adam Skolnick on the social medias that you're trying to avoid and that you're taking off your phone right now (laughs) because you just watched that movie. Uh, If you want your message considered for an upcoming episode of the Roll On edition of the podcast, leave us one at 424-235-4626. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on YouTube, on Apple, and on Spotify. Check the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. We'll put links up to everything we talked about today. You can also submit your questions on the Facebook group. Uh, and I think that's pretty much it. I wanna thank everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering production show notes and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show, which you can find on YouTube, youtube.com slash richroll. Jessica Morana for graphics. Allie Rogers for taking portraits today. Georgia Whaley for copywriting, DK, David Kahn, our boy. DK. For advertiser relationships and theme music by my boys, Tyler, Trapper, and Hari. I can't talk anymore. I think that means we need to end this podcast. Cap Appreciate it. the love you guys. See you back here in a couple of days with another episode that I really wanna tell you it is, but I'm not going to. You're just <laughs> gonna have to wait. That's the way it is. Cause I'm making the rules. Cause it's my podcast. <laughs> it's your
4: podcast. Right.
0: Peace. Plants. Yeah.